Welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm Jinx, your co-host, and I am here with co-host Paul Farrell. Paul, man, it's been ages. How are you? How have you been? It, it, it feels like it's been, what, just maybe two months, three, something like that since we last recorded? I mean, it feels that way. It's always an eternity between chances to talk to you, Jinx. I, oh, that's that's nice. Okay, it might have only been a week, but you know, it, you're right. It does feel like ages. You know, time is different in COVID land. Uh, it and it's been a long decade, so uh, I don't know. Hey, Paul, guess what? What's that? Okay, so I finally got in my copy of the Inner Sanctum Mysteries uh, box set. Got, I had to wait a little bit for it, but I snagged it for only 12 bucks through Best Buy, so God bless them. And I uh, just got it in today. Have not cracked it open yet, but I'm hoping this time next week you and I can talk about a couple of the features that hopefully I will have seen by this point. I'm excited for you to see them. They're very fun. Very fun uh, movies. I can't wait. Hey, uh, guess guess what? Uh, how, how, would I, how would I phrase this? Guess what also? Also guess what? What also? Second guess what? We have a guest with us this evening, our second ever guest to the Hammer Pub. As Twitter would have you know, our guest is, and I quote, a screenwriter of a bunch of indie horror flicks and some made-for-TV movies your mom likes. A little bit Stephen Sondheim, a little bit Stephen King. He's known for the Blade Brothers' Dracula, Unusual Attachment, a Halloween Trick, and the upcoming So Far So Close. Paul, let's put our hands together in welcoming to the Hammer Pub, Mr. Michael Verratti. Hello, hello. Woo! Mr. Barati, thank you so Welcome. much for being on our show. We uh, we really appreciate it, sir. We know you're uh, you're a huge Hammer fan like us, so uh, we're so happy that you got to uh, to join us to talk about what I think is one of the great Hammer movies. Well, it has Peter Cushing in it, so it, that automatically kind of makes it one of the great yeah. Hammer movies. Yeah, but, uh, an, an automatic win, I think. No, I love, love, love Hammer. I've had a long affinity for the studio's output, and... Um, to me, this is it. This is kind of the core of horrors. So I'm always excited to uh, dig into their catalog. Uh, it's fantastic. Now, can I ask before we get started? I mean, since you are a huge Hammer fan, I, I you know I've seen you sing Hammer's praises more than once online. Can you tell us a bit about your Hammer fandom? Like, how did you first find them? What was your first Hammer? What's your favorite Hammer? Uh, I th believe that my first Hammer was Taste the Blood of Dracula, um, and I saw it on a, a cable airing, and I just loved sort of uh, how lush and gothic it was, because there's something really romantic about these movies, even when they're not, um, and Christopher Lee is, is my favorite Dracula for that reason, because he kind of fulfills that space, um, and I... As I got into horror films and sort of got an awareness of all the different facets and uh, styles of horror movies and discovered that this was a studio that was making these, I started seeking them out. Uh, and as far as favorites go, um, I, you know, I love Dracula AD 1972. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge I love it. fan Amazing. of it because I think that there is this rare moment um, – in the 70s, where there's the crossover of disco and horror movies, where we get these sort of disco occultism films. And AD 72 is like one of those like rare moments where it sort of all works. Uh, and I, I think The Satanic Rites of Dracula is a fun follow-up. I love seeing Joanna Lumley kind of run around London as, as uh, Van Helsing's granddaughter. Um, <laughs> most of the Dracula movies are, are pretty aces in my book. I love The Abominable Snowman of the Himalayas. Uh, Blood for the Mummy's Tomb, I think the opening sequence with the hand crawling across the desert is awesome. Um, 
honestly, I could go on and on and on. I'm, I'm a, lo- a long-time fan. Uh, so, yeah, I like them all, in, in, really. <laughs> Good deal. All right. Well, you are a perfect guest for us to have in. So thank you again for your time, sir. But I got to say, uh, the way this show goes, myself and Paul usually chat about our uh, recent watches for a few minutes, like 45 or so. Then we fire up the evening's <laughs> movie. We have a few drinks. And then we uh, provide a running commentary for the folks out there to listen along with. And uh, <laughs> the more alcohol we get in us, the wonkier the conversation can get. Usually at the halfway point, we probably won't even be discussing the movie at all. Uh, Paul will get, like, shockingly personal and start attacking the lead character from <laughs> Dragon to Hell. It, it, it'll all be a guess, I think I you're projecting. I think you're projecting. But it's that's either okay. you or me. It's one that's of us sorry. anyway. Uh, but now, can I ask, will you be drinking along with us this evening? And if so, what are you having? Or not? It's completely cool if not. As a matter of fact, it'd probably be a good thing to have a sane head amongst us. But I gotta ask. Uh, I do have a glass of wine with me. However, the bottle is in the other room. So I, can, I have a feeling that, like, once this is done... If I disappear, you'll know I've gone to go get it. But uh... <laughs> we we generally loudly announce when we are refilling our drinks. So please, you know, just uh, just let us know, and we'll uh, we'll take for a few minutes while you uh, refill. Me, I am uh, well. Paul, I should ask, what are you drinking this evening? Is it the uh, the beer that wounded you, sir? Uh, I have a pack of Four Hands IPA, a uh, <sighs> couple different versions. I've got Incarnation. I've got um, uh, Rye. A divided rye IPA. Um, so I've got a, a few, you know, a few choices uh, to to kind of switch between throughout the movie. Are uh, are any of those like that swill monster stuff you had me try ages ago um, that I still can't let go if of? By swill, you mean uh, delicious nectar uh, from the gods? Then yes, they are. I am uh, no, but I am no way meant that. <laughs> it is. Uh... <laughs> That's fine. I mean, you know, there's no accounting for taste in the Hammer Pub. There sure is. There sure is. All right, me? No, I'm. Uh, I'm going light this evening. Kind of. I, maybe I'm not. I'm. Uh, you know, I've got a uh, salted caramel white Russian sitting in front of me, and then off to the side, I have kind of a mix of Bailey's and uh, butterscotch. But the butterscotch mm. is something I stumbled across. Uh, it's 99 proof. So, um, we'll see how this evening goes, Paul. I. I I'm in. Right. I'm in. I'm in no mood to try and kill myself like I did during no, the uh, Curse of the we Werewolf don't, we conversation. Don't, nobody but, wants that. But, uh, you, <clears throat> oh, sorry, I was, was going to say, it occurs to me, uh, when I was telling my Hammer origin story, I, I left this out, and I'm thinking that I probably just need to say it in, in case someone out there calls me uh, a foul for being a conflict of interest. But I did actually work for Hammer for a while as well. Oh my god, please tell oh, us about awesome. that. Uh, I mean, it's not it's not anything too grand. Um, there was a period of time where uh, Hammer's website was doing um, articles, much like a lot of horror sites. Uh, except I remember they, that, and I miss it. Well, and they had kind of stopped. The, the 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 site was just sort of sitting idle, and I don't know what was going on that day. Maybe I had a couple drinks in the Hammer Pub of my mind, and I. <laughs> shot them an email and i was like i don't know what's going on over there but uh you should have me write stuff for you which is wild because it's not like i'm a columnist regularly but i i sort of bullied my way in they were like cool come join us uh and i wrote a series of articles for them just sort of about hammer history did a little hammer uh archival work uh and then whenever they would have events here in los angeles i would go on behalf of hammer because i was the only stateside employee um Mm -hmm. 
And I was uh, working with them off and on up through when they did their uh, live haunt in uh, London about a couple years ago that was Carmilla-based. Because uh, I had sent oh, Peaches wow. Christ to go check it out because she was over there. And I was like, I, I can't go because I'm in a different country, but please use my guest pass and go check it out. So, My now, God. That's you, awesome. You, so you, you are actually Hammer Royalty. You have actually worked with them. That's incredible. Uh, well, royalty is a very strong term, but I, I, I have worked for them. Um, I was on the payroll for a bit, which is funny because it was truly it was truly uh, just a fan's dream come true. I was already working as a filmmaker here. Uh, I don't even know if they knew that I was making TV movies in America. I was just like, I love your stuff. I want to write about Christopher Lieber. And uh, <laughs> that was it. Like. I would go. I would come home from the set, and then I would sit down, and I would jam out like a history of the Quatermass films. And here's what I found out digging through the Hammer vaults, and blah 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 blah. And it was mm. awesome because it was both a job, but it was something I was doing for fun. And uh, I always put it on all my resumes. Not that it really matters uh, in terms of the work that I do, but I just want people to see it. I'm just like, hey, I work for a Hammer. <laughs> so. I, yeah, no. I, I to be sure, the fact that you work with hammer in any capacity makes you royalty i'm 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 sticking by that sir so it's hard thank to you. disagree yeah i'm, I'm kind of <laughs> in that camp too <laughs> that is amazing all right i tell you what sir you are our guest would you like to uh to start the pre-show here have you seen anything this last week horror wise that you would like to discuss uh horror wise that i would like to discuss um, well, I did rewatch Superman for the quest for peace and that was pretty <laughs> horrifying um <laughs> No, I'm trying to think. Well, this, you know, it's Tuesday. So my my last week was sort of uh, kind of not full of, of horror. I'm, I, I, I'll let you guys take I need to think about it to think about what I watched in the last week. So, you know, I do the same thing again. Time is so wonky these days. I I don't know if I watched something in the last week or if it was a couple of weeks ago. It's all just kind of a blur. But uh, Paul, tell you what, have you seen anything in the last week since uh, our last recording yeah. that you'd like to talk about? Yeah, I, I, I mean, most of what I've been watching is non-horror because I've been on this weird uh, Tony Scott kick and just like <laughs> going through his entire filmography, um, which has been really what? interesting. Guys, uh, <laughs> it, it, does all of that extend from screen drafts? Because screen drafts, at first yep, I yeah. heard you talking about Tony Scott. <laughs> I'm obsessed now, with that show. <laughs> I cannot open up Twitter without seeing somebody singing Tony Scott's praises, which I am completely... Oh completely fine with but it's like you and i had a conversation i was like oh it's cool that paul is revisiting tony scott but now it's like again it's tony scott yeah. everywhere which is amazing yeah he um yeah so i just i've been kind of running through his films not in any particular order um the only one of his movies that i would even say like and it's not a horror movie but the only one that comes even close would probably be the fan i guess um, that I've watched, uh, that, which that could have been like a hammer psycho thriller back in the sixties. It's a little thrillery. I mean, it's you know, it's 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 a very kind of silly movie in some ways, but it's Robert De Niro and Wesley Snipes, um, and it's sort of a stalker movie. Um, De Niro very much is playing a variation of his uh, king of comedy character, um, and you know, becoming incredibly obsessed with this famous personality. He's an angry man who isn't very happy in his own life and, and kind of 
lets that take him all the way to eking his way into Snipes's life and actually like offing a a better performing player on his baseball team and this that and the other it's it's kind of a a bloated um you know big hollywood sort of summer blockbuster type of movie but that's also trying to be really a personal character driven piece having said all that it's a super fun movie <laughs> i mean i don't know i had a really good time with it um so i don't know I mean, that it, tony scott only made good films I but I don't think he them. made no. Don't, I lo, don't get me wrong. I, don't, I love. I, don't I, think I, I hate Scott. any of his movies. But but my point being is that even though I don't think every movie was a home run, sure. I don't think he ever made a movie that wasn't at least entertaining. Mm-hmm. He had such a varied career too. I mean, as far as horror goes, he did direct The Hunger, which is oh yes, like peak peak vampire movie. But <laughs> then when I think sort of uh, later Tony Scott, Man on Fire and Domino, Domino. that like yeah. one two punch of like there's 300 edits in one second. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Man on Fire is is spectacular. I think I don't know. I I love that movie and and it when it came out, it sort of stylistically was kind of unlike anything else that existed at that time. Like the way he, like the overexposed look to the movie, the, the, the colors, how every, how the movie itself just literally feels like it's on fire. Um, and subtitles, which are, yeah, just that movie is so engaging on so many different levels. Um, and, and again, like most great filmmakers and he's definitely more of a, a journeyman, director but he he feels a bit ahead of the curve when it comes to his style and his direction um and he also has a really interesting way of making incredibly personal stories inside of big actiony movies that would normally be de- devoid of um interesting interpersonal interactions um so i don't know i i've been having a really good time running through those movies no, that's fantastic. I do love that. Uh, I think we talked about this a bit last week, but Man on Fire, Domino, and then the BMW short uh, that he did with James Brown, uh, Beat the Devil, all seem to be like uh, just this neat little trilogy of movies where, you know, he was really pushing that visual style is uh, about yeah. as far as he could. And then it seems around like, was it around Deja Vu that he started s- sort of backing off from that, I think? Yeah, yeah, a bit, because um, then you get, like, Taking a Pelham, um, and Unstoppable is really fun, but it's it's a little bit away from that kind of style, so. Yeah, which which is a good thing, I think. I think Unstoppable works just as kind of a... Uh, oh, yeah. It's, know, a, more it's, a a fun, it's a fun punctuation mark at the end of the career. Um, I did watch one kind of definitely horror, weird, rando kind of movie this, this week, because I always got to throw one of those in. Um, I checked out 1988's Don't Panic. Um, Never heard of it. It's a Spanish horror film uh, that uh, Vinegar Syndrome put out, uh, I guess, probably part of their Black Friday sale. Um, And it is kind of a wild movie. (laughs) Um, Directed by Ruben Galindo Jr., who did um, several other horror films. Yeah, they've been putting out uh, several of his films, but this is about a 17-year-old kid who basically at his birthday party, he plays with like a Ouija board, and then he kind of like gets possessed by this weird evil force, um, or I guess it's sort of ambiguous, and then he starts having like murder visions um, of like his friends getting 
killed in a very like Freddy Krueger kind of way. Um, like the friends are getting killed by sort of an invisible force dragged around the rooms. Um, and every time that happens, the main character sort of goes into this red eyed haze, sees the murder, isn't actually there physically present for it and starts wondering if he's the one who's actually killing them. Uh, it is very much like a Friday, Friday the 13th knockoff kind of movie. Um, it's very over the top. The acting is kind of what you'd expect it to be. Um, and it's just bizarre. Like, like for example, the 17 year old kid in this movie wears these like dinosaur pajamas, like, like, like little kid pajamas, but it's never, it's treated like totally normal. And and he parades around in these things for, I would say 60% of the runtime. Cause a lot of stuff happens at night while he's sleeping. He wears the, wears the same pajamas every night. And then when he gets out of his house, he's in these pajamas. So he looks like, like an, like a 17 year old kid pretending to be an eight year old kid. Um, but Paul, the if you movie... could try not to be uh, too judgy here, I feel like I've been Look, wearing the same pajamas know, for about the last nine months. I, I get it. I know you've got your dinosaur <laughs> pajamas. It's okay. But, uh, you know, I don't know that you'd wear them in a movie. <laughs> if it I don't know that at this point. <laughs> I haven't had the opportunity to but check. It's, it's, it's pretty fun. It's pretty wild. It's a, uh, it's a tight 90 minute movie. I love 90 minutes or under is my sweet spot, as you know. Um, so yeah, if you're into, uh, into something like that, I would definitely check it out. The Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray is very nice. Uh, great transfer, some cool special features. So definitely worth, uh, worth giving a look. Yeah, I love Vinegar Syndrome. Uh, Paul, I saw a movie that would not fall into your 90 minute sweet spot. Um, I watched The Empty Man this past week. Oh, yeah. Have, uh, you like that? I love that. Mr. Verratti, have you seen The Empty Man by any chance? I can't say that I have. Okay, so it's a relatively new horror movie. Um, I don't know if you remember, Paul, when we did the uh, oh top ten episode, I believe Foy mentioned it and Feeney mentioned that he'd heard some good things. Um, I recently heard about it on the Colors of the Dark podcast as well with uh, Elric Kane and Rebecca McKendry. And yeah. they mentioned it, and I had no idea that it was based on a Cullen Bunn graphic novel. This is the guy who did uh, Harrow County, which is one of the best damn horror comics that's been on stand in years. He's a brilliant writer. Uh, he's done some cool spinoff stuff, too, uh, from time to time. I think he did a subspecies book and a Pumpkinhead comic as well. Anyway, uh, he did a graphic novel called The Empty Man. The movie is based on it. I've seen some chatter online, people losing their minds, saying that this is, like, overly long. It's, like, three hours. I think Foy even took a swipe at it on the podcast. It's, like, two hours and 17 minutes. If you remove the credits from it, it's barely over two hours. Like, so it's not 90 minutes, but it's not, like, just unreasonable <laughs> either, I don't think. Uh, but what it is, Paul, is one of the best damn horror movies I'll likely see all year. Um, oh, wow. It is... It just came out of nowhere. I can't believe they – what's crazy is that this isn't like a tiny little, you know, sort of indie movie that people have, you know, had to discover on their own and then, you know, sort of talk about, talk up. And then you see that, you know, maybe there are – you know, all the movies that we've loved this past year, like the the – smaller movies, the indie movies that could, something like Host or something like that. It seems like whenever word of mouth delivers movies like that to us, it's generally of the smaller indie kind of sort. This looks like a big studio feature. In fact, it was a 20th Century Fox flick that was made back in 2017 that, for whatever reason, just hasn't made it to screens until recently, the last couple of weeks. And, of course, VOD, what with COVID and whatnot. It's 
fantastic. It's gorgeous. It's this, I tweeted about this, but it's like this noirish detective story that's kind of grafted onto uh, kind of like this Lovecraftian tale of unknowable horror and cosmic dread and things that lay just beyond our reality that we couldn't possibly hope to understand, you know? Um, it's all about, it's, it's, you know, it concerns an ex-cop who takes on the task of uh, searching for a friend's missing daughter who appears to have gotten mixed up in a cult that worships a figure known as the Empty Man. And, um, well, that's what the movie is after the first 20 minutes. I will say this about it. It has probably the longest prologue, the longest pre-credit sequence or pre-title sequence I've seen in a movie since the 2009 Friday the 13th. Like we're we're talking like twenty two minutes. It's its own movie wow. in the first twenty some minutes, and you're watching it. You get invested in these characters, and even though you know better, at a certain point, you just kind of forget that they're not your leads. And then you know what happens happens, and we eventually revisit that later on in the film proper. But you know, at about twenty five minutes in, that's when the uh, you know the main story begins, and. It's my God, is it engrossing? You know, there's uh, there's some really interesting philosophy sort of bandied about in the movie. But the thing that really stuck with me thematically is this sort of notion of um, it's this movie that wrestles with the human condition a bit. And, you know, it, it weirdly reminded me not at all plot wise. But it reminded me a bit of Memento, you know, the, this idea, mm. you know, are we are we just the sum of our memories? Uh, you know, the events that shape us, are we more, are we less? Uh, you know, how does that make us more or less real? What gives our lives meaning? You know, at times the movie seems to be kind of very nihilistic, and at times it seems to be anything but. And uh, I, I, I gotta say, when I first watched it, as much as I loved it, and I did, in the final minute... I had this feeling that the ending didn't fully stick the landing. But I also haven't been able to stop thinking about that ending in the few days since I've seen it. So something about it works. And I don't want to say any more than that because I really don't want to spoil it for anyone. But uh, again, I will say I believe it's one of the better horror films I'll likely see this year. And I can't wait to read the graphic novel series that it's based on. Wow. That sounds awesome. (laughs) So that is a thumbs up from me. Uh, Mr. Verratti, uh, did you have anything you wanted to discuss uh, that you thought of? Yeah, you know, I did remember that uh, within the last week, uh, I showed my partner Pieces for the first time, um, which, for those who don't know, is a 1982 film uh, directed by Juan Piquer Simone. Uh, And basically, my challenge was show me something crazy. And I was like, I've got it. Uh, Pieces is one of those really great grindhouse drive-in era movies. And for uh, audience members who don't know it, the um, the tagline for the movie was, it's exactly what you think it is. Altern- <laughs> Alternatively, you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. Um, so for those two things, you can pretty much kind of gather what the movie is about. Uh, it's essentially uh, takes place on a college campus where... Uh, Girls are going missing, and when their bodies are recovered, there's a piece of them not there, uh, and so the killer is keeping trophies. And TV stalwart Christopher George comes to investigate the crime, and for some reason, his wife Linda Day George goes undercover as a tennis pro at the college to help investigate as well. Um, Lots of shenanigans and uh, gore. Um, Yeah, it's... 
Is it plausible? I don't know. Is it a good time? Sure. <laughs> and also, what a great movie to have watched the same week we're watching a Frankenstein movie because it's all about the pieces yeah. of the body. So that's relevant. <laughs> and it does have. I mean, I can't think of too many more endings that are more batshit than that one. So, uh, <laughs> which I I do adore. So. Yeah, I can't believe when you asked earlier, like, what horror movie I watched this week and how that kind of, like, briefly escaped my memory, because it is sort of one of those films that you sort of are left kind of agape afterwards. You're just like, oh, this was a litany of choices. I'm not going to say all of them were the right choice, but they also were all the best choice. Yes. I agree. I love Pieces. Now I I want to rewatch Pieces. Um, Yes. Maybe we need to, uh, Paul, every once in a while on the Hammer Pub, we need to do a non-Hammer movie. Just random. Just, uh, and pieces should be. I do think that American viewers would do well to rediscover uh, that filmmaker's filmography. Because in addition to pieces, he also did Slugs, which I think is delightful and gross. Um, I believe, speaking of Vinegar Syndrome, they're also putting out his Cthulhu Mansion, which was one of his later movies. I've Uh, never seen that. And he did The Rift, uh, the underwater movie with Ray Wise from Twin Peaks. So he's kind of like one of these wacky genre filmmakers that was like, yeah, let's do it. Let's do the thing. And maybe it'll work. Maybe it doesn't. Who cares? You know, and I, I love that kind of attitude. So, Yeah, I just got a copy of Cthulhu Mansion, so I'm excited to check that out. How have I never even heard of What is Cthulhu Mansion? I, I need this in my life. Well, it just came out via Vinegar Syndrome. It is uh, from the director of pieces, Juan Piquer Simone. Uh, it is, an, uh, I guess, an analogous Lovecraft kind of story, because I don't think it's really based on any existing text of Lovecraft's. Um, right. Lots of, lots of practical effects. Uh, some, some, once again, shenanigans. I think that like his, his whole oeuvre is, is shenanigan-based. Sold. I think I that's a good description. <laughs> you know, at a certain point, I'm just going to need to get on the Vinegar Syndrome uh, subscription, I think. Uh, because everything right. that Paul talks about every week just from them sounds amazing. So, I, I took the plunge last year and did the subscription. And I, I did it again this year. And yeah, it's just, it's such a joy <laughs> to to have a box of craziness shipped to me every month. And discover what you know what they have in store um you know and i love i love the work that brad's doing um i love the movies they unearth i just and i like supporting them i'm just a big fan of everything they do um now how does their subscription work you can only do it like once a year or can you subscribe at any time because i know they usually do it around black friday that like they make the subscriptions available yes they they they, you can do it Technically, you can do a subscription twice a year. The annual subscription can only be done on Black Friday, but there's a halfway to Black Friday sale where they allow you to do sort of a halfway subscription. Um, so, like halfway through the year, that'll come up. But yeah, the the annual subscriptions available um, on Black Friday for that weekend, and uh, so it's kind of a limited window. Um, but you know, you it, it's. If you buy a lot of their stuff and you're kind of into what they do, it's definitely worth it. I mean, you you technically save money if you're actually going to buy everything. <laughs> like, right. I am a crazy man and probably would do that anyway. Um, but it's, for me, like I said, it's just, it, it kind of 
forces me to check out new stuff every month that I may have like questioned whether I should get it or not. And you know, anybody that collects Blu-rays, we're all on a budget. So I know it's, it's a hard thing, but to me, it's like, I'm fine allocating a certain amount to vinegar syndrome over some of the other labels, just because I know, I know what they're going to give me is high quality. I know there's going to be great special features. I know the transfers are going to be fantastic. I mean, some of the transfers in these movies are just unreal <laughs> for for what they are. So, so yeah, it, like I said, it's it's been something I've really enjoyed, um, and I uh, I recommend it. Great, I might check it out the next time it comes around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I will too. And plus, I got to say this: uh, one last thing I'll say about vinegar syndrome is I really do appreciate their customer service too. Like they. Uh, I, I just got a notification the other day that they're sending me a replacement disc for uh, for Beastmaster. Yeah, I had yeah, no the, uh, idea there was even a problem with Beastmaster. Well, didn't was... need to reach out to them. Didn't need to discover by myself. They're just boom, sending me a replacement. That's fantastic. Yeah. And their website never crashes during their sales. <laughs> Honestly, important. <laughs> it really is. We won't uh, name names on the website crashing front, uh, but. <laughs> But no, the the Beastmaster thing was super cool. Yeah, they just basically anyone that bought it, they they just sent it out to them without having to report it or ask for it. And it was the second disc. It wasn't actually. It was the 4K disc is fine. The first Blu-ray is fine. It was the the new cut of well, not the new cut, but the new version of the movie with updated effects. That was the one that was having issues. Um, so and also if you if it got shipped after a certain date, yours was fine. It was really just the first sort of run of shipments that they made that had the uh, defective disc. Good deal. All right, guys, we are about 30 minutes in. Uh, do we want to do one more round of recent watches or do we want to dive into evil? I mean, I honestly don't have much more. I mean, it's been a Tony Scott heavy week, so I think don't <laughs> panic. Um, <laughs> I, I rewatched Hills Have Eyes uh, because I'm doing an article on it. Um, oh, nice. I mean, I don't know what more is there, there's to say about Wes Craven's Hills Have Eyes, but it's still pretty fucked up uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, disturbing and uh, dirty. It's a dirty movie is what I'll say. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think I it got. was more a week of TV for me beyond uh, Pieces and Superman for the Quest for Peace. I, I did. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, I did, though, it, it, more of a true crime sort of horror I finished the docu-series uh, Murder on Middle Beach on HBO Max, which was extremely heavy. Uh, and um, one of those things that when the credits rolled, I was like, oh, maybe humanity uh, shouldn't continue. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> Isn't but... that every sort of docudrama on HBO, though? Like, it just, my God, they're brilliant. But at the same time, by the time you reach the end of them, you're just kind of emotionally drained. Oh, I watched all four hours of the Heaven's Gate documentary in one sitting, thinking, oh, wow. <laughs> mis mistakenly, I was like, oh, I'll just watch one of these. And I know what this is about, because I remember when this was in the news. First off, I had no idea what it was about, because the news story was literally like the epilogue of an already insane story that we none of us knew. Uh, but then I just couldn't stop watching it. So four hours later, it was like, okay, um, everything's terrible. Um, <laughs> And it, but but it is so funny. I, I they keep coming out with these documentaries and these docu series uh, during this time, and I understand too. It's because production is very difficult in the COVID landscape, whereas right. it is easier to put together a documentary. 
but it, a lot of them are true crime documentaries or these very heavy subjects like, you know, Murder on Middle Beach, the Heaven's Gate documentary, the, those two documentaries about the whole Nexium thing. And oh, it's yeah. next thing you know, it's like our whole year has been full of being shut-ins and murder shows. Um, <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> yeah. And, and then so someone calls and they're like, how are you doing? Not great, Steve. Not <laughs> great at all. <laughs> Things are rough. <laughs> oh, my God. There was that um, – did you see the British uh, television series? It was only like six episodes. It was based on some sort of murder in the mid-'80s. Um, oh, God, I hate that I've forgotten the title because it is brilliant. But, yeah, no, it's depressing as hell, too. Uh, I think it was – yeah, I think it was uh, exclusive to HBO Max, the uh, the U.S. distribution on it. But, damn it all, I cannot remember the title – um, well, it's really more fool us too, because it's like when you start watching a, a movie or you know documentary series rather about a grisly murder. I don't know what we think we're gonna get out of it. Like, <laughs> <That's true. laughs> there's not. It's not gonna be at the end of the credits and like, and everyone found a higher plane of being. No, right. <laughs> it's, it's just like, well, lots of lives were wrecked, but you know, here's a slow version of a pop song. You like credits go. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, the Murders at White House Farm is what it was called, by the way. And uh, if you get the chance to see it, it is uh, it is just a bad time. But it's uh, but it's oh, great. You know, I'm going to start watching it like as soon as we're done. That's the sad part. About <laughs> I was going to say it's going high on the watch list. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's uh, it really is. It's it's beautifully made, depressing as hell. It's uh, just sterling television. It really is. Um, Okay, well, uh, oh, there is one thing I will mention just in passing. I'll be brief before we uh, dive in. Has anyone here seen Psycho Goreman? Oh, not yet, but I really, really adore the work of Steve Katansky, who's the filmmaker. I've loved uh, what he does ever since he was part of Astron 6, so I cannot wait to see this movie. Yeah, I I, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm really excited to see it. Okay, good deal. It's it's just you know I saw an ad on Twitter uh, today. I watched it last night, but I saw the ad on Twitter today that called it "ET meets Hellraiser," and I can't really argue that. Um, it's just uh, <laughs> it's just it's a blast. It's it's absolutely absurd. It feels like an '80s film, but yeah. it also feels like Aliens made it in a weird way. Like it's it's <laughs> it, it like in a way with the setup, it feels like a movie that could have ultimately had more heart than it did but that's not the movie they were making like it's kind of content to not really go that schmaltzy route that they could have uh, like it it's a movie where lessons are learned but not the right ones uh so so it's it's just it's an utter sounds fantastic <laughs> i can't wait yeah <laughs> all right i think we've gotten to the point where we need to go ahead and dive into the evil of frankenstein Guys, so what we'll do here, let's go ahead and advance to, uh, well, I'll tell you what, uh, depending on whether or not people are going to be streaming or checking out that nifty Scream Factory Blu-ray, there always seems to be a difference with uh, how many you know, pre-movie uh, company logos they attach at the beginning and how many times we've got to sit through the damn Universal logo. So I tell you what, everybody out there in listener land, let's go ahead and try and sync up our pictures to the very first frame of the movie. 
So we should just be fading into what appears to be a picture of a forest and the words, a hammer film production. Let's all get to that point and then we'll do a countdown and press start. Guys, are we all good on, uh, on your own sense? Yeah. Good deal. Okay. I can just barely make out a hammer film production. Let's press start in five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. Guys, I got to tell you, I'm excited about this one because as much as I love Hammer, and I do love Hammer, the Frankenstein cycle is probably my favorite thing that ever, Hammer ever did. Well, well, it's certainly one of their keystone franchises. I, I, I really enjoy both the Frankenstein and Dracula movies because in a lot of ways, they presuppose all of the horror franchises that come later uh, because this wasn't really a thing with with sort of interconnected sequels like universal sort of did it with the classic universal era but hammer really kind of committing to the movies following one another and kind of having like a shared mythos between them which is funny that i'm saying that because obviously the evil of frankenstein is actually an out of continuity story in the frankenstein (laughs) pieces but i just really always enjoyed uh especially with the later Frankenstein films and all of the Dracula movies, how they tend to just pick up where the other one left off. So you kind of could, as a fan, just imagine this sort of grandiose Gothic storytelling. Yeah, they're, they're definitely proto franchises for what, what was to come. And, and the Frankenstein Frankenstein franchise is definitely one of my favorites. And I, this particular entry is really interesting because one, it's the only one in the franchise proper, even though it's sort of disconnected continuity wise, that wasn't directed by Terrence Fisher. Um, and Freddie Francis brings like, even this opening is a very sort of colorful, energetic, kinetic, well-composed opening that feels sort of inventive in terms of how it's shot, how it's lit. Um, it doesn't really feel like akin to some of the other uh, Frankenstein movies, but it's still, really interesting and engaging. Um, I love feels... like, oh, sorry. oh no, no. I just love like how it's intercutting like soundstage stuff to exterior stuff. So, like right there, it, it feels very fluid. It doesn't feel like soundstage to exterior. Like it does in some hammer movies. Um, I mean, part of that is the budget that this was a movie that had an actual sort of studio money behind it. And that that's very apparent throughout the film. Um, but I do think this opening is really cool and really grabs you. Oh, and that well, matte painting shot right there is phenomenal. Like, that house, all, everything to the left is a matte painting. Well, and I always have to give credit to Freddie Francis uh, when I can, because he, throughout his entire filmography as a director, still was a cinematographer first. And yeah. all, all of his movies, even the ones uh, that maybe don't always work for audiences, always look beautiful he can set up a shot like nobody's business he's truly one of the great visual artists of of the classic era of horror and this movie starts exactly as you say lush from the beginning yeah yeah and it it goes on to show up in a lot of the work he did for amicus um you know and this is such a great entry point to that this almost feels like it could be a tales from the crypt style story, you know, like it, well, in fact, it was based on a script for tales of Frankenstein, which was the abandoned TV show. Um, so, I mean, this all derives from basically being a 22 minute Frankenstein short. 
Well, what I think is interesting here, too, we mentioned how this is sort of out of continuity with the previous two Frankenstein movies. But Frankenstein, unlike the Dracula franchise, does sort of periodically give us different kind of iterations of the Doctor. You know, Dracula is always Dracula. But right. if you look if you look at uh, the uh, horror of Frankenstein or the curse of Frankenstein and revenge of Frankenstein, um, he's very much a villain. Where in this one, there's something almost altruistic about him. He he has good intentions. Uh, the Frankenstein franchise is not afraid to give us different POVs. Almost, uh, I guess, since I mentioned Superman and superheroes earlier, this could be like the Earth C version of Frankenstein, <laughs> as opposed to what we got. Like he's not so much a villain here as he is misunderstood and well-meaning. Whereas later in Frankenstein must be destroyed. He's like a baddie bad. So I, I like that they give Peter Cushing even kind of the room to play, to explore who this guy is. Well, I kind of like that he even has, and Paul and I have talked about this before too, how the character kind of has an arc and pushing, uh, Cushing rather. Okay. If I can just take two seconds here to say that, uh, this is maybe the greatest piece of music in all of Hammer. Uh, that's why we use it at the beginning of every podcast. I adore it. Um, I mean, my God, just, well, of course, we can't listen to it right now because I'm assuming all of our televisions are muted. <laughs> you, you could insert a clip. <laughs> you, you know what? I might. I might actually do that if that's at it, all possible because I totally agree. Uh, good God. That. It's just, it's, it's, it's everything I love about Hammer just as music. It's, yeah. uh, Don Bass, man. No, but um, um, you're right. I mean, in, in the first film, he is he's a villain. He's a bastard. You know, the second film, he's he's still a baddie. But, you know, in, even in the second one, he's a villain that we're kind of invited to like a little bit. You know, he's a little charming. But here, it, it surely has his faults. Surely he's done dodgy things. But he's much closer, I think, to being our hero here, even if he's more of an anti-hero. And yeah. yet by the time he get, we get to Created Woman, which is my favorite in the uh, run and one of my favorite Hammer movies ever, I mean, he's a decent guy in that. But then, you know, you get to the later films and that kind of, that all goes to hell and he becomes worse than ever. But I, I, I love that we start out with, and again, you know, we've talked about this before, Paul, but I, I, I wonder if it's all linked to his, his goal, you know, his, I, in the first movies, there's that I, sort of villainous. I think he and, has an internal continuity. Like, yeah, like you were yeah. talking about. Um, I'm also fascinated. And for, for listeners who maybe don't know my work in the world of horror or have not listened to me on other podcasts before, a lot of what I do in the world of horror is sort of dissecting and examining the intersection of queer identity and the horror genre. And uh, Hammer was always kind of early to play with these things. Uh, and you see it in different – like, obviously, they, they made uh, an adaptation of Carmilla long before a lot, of, a lot of people wanted to touch the lesbianism of that. Um but especially in this movie and moving forward, even though we see it in some of the other ones, I'm so fascinated by the fact that he always has this kind of like younger, handsome assistant, always. Like, Han, and I, I, I'm not saying that there's anything going on there, but I think Hans is like very, very much invested in Frankenstein in, in a lot of ways that papers could be written about. I, do you feel as though, you know, we've talked about the continuity of this film compared to the first two, you know, whether or not it falls into line, whether it's canon with those first two and maybe even what comes after. I I want to throw something crazy out here, and it's it's all inspired by Hans. Um, 
you know, th- this movie essentially, okay, tried to reboot the franchise and make evil, you know, in a way, almost as much a loose sequel to the Universal films as it could be, you know, a loose sequel to the Hammer films that came before. It. And yet, you know, we have Hans here or a Hans, you know, is it the same Hans as Revenge? Uh, even though it's a different actor, you know, maybe, maybe not. But and hear me out. This is this is pure fanboy uh, nerdery here, but I'm sticking to this. <laughs> Everything in this movie that tells us that this is no longer in canon with what came before, I think, can be readily dismissed. And it could be considered in canon with what's come before by simply uh, considering the fact that maybe all of the events that we have in this movie, every single one depicted, even the flashbacks, took place after Revenge. You know, maybe at some point after Revenge, Victor got himself a third tattooless arm. You know, maybe got himself a new Hans. Maybe not. Maybe Hans himself got a new body. Maybe they split. You right. know, Victor yeah. does his thing in Karlstad uh, with the Karloff wannabe. And then at some point we get the events of this film. And uh, so I say, you know, I say evil is totally in canon with Curse and Revenge. Horror of Frankenstein is a little tougher to make a case for, but not impossible. <laughs> not well, impossible. Well. Oh, go ahead, Paul. Oh, no, you're fine. I, I see it a little bit like Evil Dead 2, right? Where yeah. it's it's canon, but it's not canon, right? Like, like there's... To be able to explore the character in the way that each sort of iteration wants to, there has to be a bit of reinvention. Um, and granted, this movie was sort of hindered a bit by, you know, the Carreras kind of saying, okay, you have to adhere to um, the original... Frankenstein, um, because we finally have the rights to be able to do it, you know, when it comes to the makeup and the story structure, there's some things that they were sort of told they had to do. But I think as with all great Hammer movies, and, you know, Heinz was particularly good at this, adopting the uh, the demands of the producers to a more creative end, and finding a, a good way to tell that story. Um, you know, that, that's, that was part of the reinvention was that to, to be able to adopt those things that they were told they had to put in, they had to change some of the continuity, but I agree with you, Jinx. I think, I think it's meant to be seen as a continuous story, even though largely fans consider it to be kind of a one-off. I still see it within continuity. He's still, he's, you know, Cushing is delivering a performance of a man who feels beleaguered, who's constantly hounded for his, uh, you know, for his pursuit in the name of science. Yeah, you know, he just said a moment ago, a yeah, they always destroy everything. At one point we get him saying something like, uh, why can't they ever leave me alone? Right. You know, if yeah. he's only had one go around uh, with making a monster and running away, then that doesn't make as much sense to me as, say, this being his third or fourth go around. You know sure. what I mean? Yeah. Well, and it's interesting. I, I like the Evil Dead comparison that you made, Paul, and it, it actually kind of jogged my brain into thinking that it's really all about the power and perspective of storytelling. And by that, I mean within the world. And I, I would relate it to how Robert Rodriguez set up the El Mariachi movies. Oh, my uh, God, that's amazing. Because it, it, he has always explained sort of the kind of inconsistencies and canonical like problems with it as it's all about the power of myth. The first movie, with its sort of pared-down story, is what really happened. The second movie is when it becomes like a local myth, 
And the third movie, when it's so overblown and crazy, is when it's passed into legend and these people can't even possibly seem to be true. If we look at where we're at in the Frankenstein movies at this point, all of it could work canon-wise because it matters on who's telling the story. And this movie literally is framed at a certain point where Frankenstein starts telling Hans about what happened. So we could kind of glean... If Frankenstein is the one who is relaying us the story of what's happening in the evil of Frankenstein, of course he's going to be more sympathetic. Of course yeah. he's going to be yeah. kinder. Where and and so now you have just kind of caused me to reframe this whole movie. Maybe it's not con- in. Maybe it's not out of continuity. Maybe evil of Frankenstein is what Frankenstein himself thinks happened in the previous two films, even though it may not be true. I love yeah. the comparison to the Rodriguez Mariachi trilogy. One, just because I love the Mariachi trilogy and I love Robert Rodriguez. But two, I remember around the time that the, uh, the third movie came out, Once Upon a Time, somebody asked him about those inconsistencies. And he was like, well, this isn't the third movie. And he was like, this is the fourth movie in the franchise. Uh, I just never made the third movie to tie, you know, the second movie to this one. And uh, in a way, that's, again, that's kind of how I feel about this one. I feel like we are missing an entire movie's worth of information that we kind of get in a flashback. Well, and what's great is you mentioned how Anthony Hines writes. Uh, One thing that I do know from sort of my digging around while working from Hammer is there were a lot more pitches and a lot more scripts, like fully written scripts, for both Dracula and Frankenstein movies that were just kind of pushed aside for whatever reason. And sometimes they would cannibalize them and use parts of them in other movies and other times it was like oh we cannot make this right now so we're just not doing it at all like there is a there's a dracula movie where dracula was supposed to be in india versus an evil maharaji that they just <laughs> that oh they yeah never made. That, i was telling you that sounded so great yeah they made an yeah, audio cause... drama of it right and i know that there were a number of frankenstein movies so who's to say that anthony hines didn't write something that kind of brought these things together and they were just yeah. like Meh. you know no, Can you're I right. I mean, oh, sorry, Paul. Oh no, you're fine, dude. Go ahead. No, please. Oh, uh, yeah. I was just saying, um, yeah, because like in '58 or '59, they wrote a third Frankenstein movie that was called Fear of Frankenstein, and then that movie just Universal didn't want to make it, or Warner Brothers didn't want to make it, and it got pushed aside, and then it got cannibalized. So then, by the time that they actually were going to make this movie, they were already talking about. Uh, a movie called And Then Frankenstein Created Woman, which was also written in the late 50s. And then they found out that based on the rights agreements that they had for the Frankenstein Frankenstein TV show, um, they had all the rights to the makeup and the original story and, you know, Jack Pierce's monster. And so they're like, oh, well, because we have the rights for this show, we can actually transpose that into a movie because the show's not going to get picked up. So now we're going to throw out... And then Frankenstein created woman and fear Frankenstein take some of those elements and make a brand new one. (laughs) So it was like, it was a constant churning of ideas that led to what was happening. Um, And it just feels like there were, I I wonder how many wonderful, like you said, unused scripts and ideas were out there uh, that, you know, we might've had. You know, hammer has a deal with Titan comics and I always hope and wish (laughs) <laughs> that somebody would would just say, we are sitting on a stack of classic era Hammer scripts that for whatever reason weren't used. 
let's turn them into comic books. Let's turn them into graphic yeah. novels because there's still an audience there. Obviously we can't make these movies with Peter Cushing or Christopher Lee or Terrence Fisher or Freddie Francis. They've unfortunately all passed on, but these stories were written in the era that they were alive. So they imbue the spirit of that. I want the graphic novel of the unquenchable thirst of Dracula. I want yeah, to read great. the fear of Frankenstein. And you know, uh, Simon CEO of hammer. If you're listening, Please, please. <laughs> maybe, maybe send another one of your emails <laughs> that got you into that website. Because I would, I would, I would first murder. <laughs> I would murder to pitch. I wrote a script oh, yeah. once uh, that was meant to be kind of like a spiritual follow up to the Frankenstein cycle. I would murder to be able to pitch the Titan. But you're absolutely right. There, you know, they they have that comics line just sitting there, and they're not really doing anything with it. I believe they did. Uh, was it the Mummy? And they did a Captain Kronos. Uh, Comic. And, the, and they were both fantastic. They and, were. Uh, the Captain Kronos was, I, I will say, and I don't think that I'm breaking any rules or that I'm not, not allowed to say this. Uh, while I was working with them, I did kind of like, you know, push this agenda at one point. And I had started early on coming up with some, some concepts for comics. And we had been talking with Titan and then whatever reason, you know, just the entertainment, like every movie, every book, takes years and years and years and, and all sorts of things. Uh, the conversation just fell by the wayside. Um, and I really should dig through my emails just to see if like some, some of those people are still there. So I could be like, Hey, remember when we talked about this, because it would be cool to get hammer back up in the comic book world. Yeah. That'd be awesome. Because, you know, the likenesses could be, you know, Peter Cushing may no longer be with us, but you know, we could certainly draw Peter Cushing. You know, we could draw Christopher Lee. We could we could have their likenesses. I don't know what the rights issues are there or, you know, with using their likenesses. But I remember there was a, a comic book line. I can't for the life of me remember the name of the story. But I think it was from something like Monsterverse Comics. And it was long before the Hammer line at Titan actually came into being. But it was essentially like a spiritual sequel to uh, to the hammer line that brought them all together in the same universe. You know, the, uh, you know, Frankenstein, Dracula, so on and so forth. And I kid you not, the, the Frankenstein that they have on the cover of this uh, graphic novel compilation, it's Peter Cushing. It's Peter Cushing with long gray hair. You know, uh, the Dracula is pretty much essentially Christopher Lee's Dracula. So it would be neat to see hammer actually do something with, because, Here's the thing. As much as I love Hammer, and I absolutely love Hammer, and that includes New Hammer. I, I love the two uh, Woman in Black movies. I love Wakewood. Uh, the Resident was so-so. Uh, I actually really like The Quiet Ones more than most, it seems. But if you're bringing... And let me in. I absolutely adore, I would say. Um, but if you're bringing Hammer back, why not resurrect the characters that we all know Hammer for? You know, I That's something that's kind of mystified me in the last few years, and as I understand it, they haven't really made much in the last three or four years, aside from, uh, I think they were a distributor for The Lodge last yeah, year, I believe. Yeah, The Lodge was was billed as one of the, the studio's films. I, I do know that when they did the live immersive theater event in um, London, and they based it around Carmilla, and that was really, in, the intent was, let's start going back and, and using some of the characters that we're known for. And as far as I know, that event did very well. 
Uh, and they were planning on doing another one. And this is one where I probably I would get in trouble. So I'm not going to say they were going to do another live event with another popular hammer character. And I don't know what happened, whatever reason that didn't transpire. And then of course, COVID has like makes theatrical immersive events and, and haunted attractions impossible. Mm-hmm. So who's to say if we'll get that, but if those scripts exist and they could be, you know, transmuted to a digital series or a movie or something, why not? I mean, Netflix's Dracula series, while not perfect, loved it. <laughs> I I loved. It. I would argue that their version of Van Helsing is my second favorite version of Van Helsing ever. Period. Absolutely, she's because amazing. She's so good. I mean, I'm always going to defer to Peter Cushing, but she, you know, came out of nowhere and took that number two spot with no <laughs> no uh, challenging. And one of the greatest Draculas ever, just out of nowhere. I have no idea who that actor was, but his take was so unique and singular. I've never seen that Dracula before. But they leaned on Hammer lore for sure. And I know this because Mark Gatiss, who wrote that series, is a longtime Hammer fan. And you mentioned the Mm -hmm. audio adaptation of Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula. He was the one who adapted it. So it's sort of like (laughs) there are people out there who want this back. So, like, you know, whether Titan, you know, takes those old scripts and turns them into comic books or give Mark Gatiss, the, you know, the keys to the castle and let him make the new Hammer Frankenstein something. Let's just see it happen, you know? You know, between – it seems like between his work on uh, Dracula and Sherlock and uh, Doctor Who, you know, because he always writes, like, you can tell – that there's a hammer fan in there. Like it's, it's written within his work. I, I would love to see somebody like, I, I, I adore Mark Gatiss, by the way, not only as a writer, but as an actor too. So it would be amazing to see him. I'm surprised he hasn't worked with hammer in any capacity for all the movies that they made through, what was it? 2008 through around 2016, 17. I'm surprised he wasn't there. I mean, the closest he got was being, uh, you know, he had a brief role as a doctor or scientist in the final 20 minutes of, uh, you know, Victor Frankenstein, which wasn't Hammer at all, but obviously the reason he was there was probably because, you know, it kind of felt like a Hammer movie at times, kind of not, but but I do love him. I, I'm a huge fan of his work. Yeah, same. I I would just love him to, to keep going. I also want him to do another season of Dracula. I don't know if that would... I mean, they wouldn't because of how it ended, but... Uh... <laughs> It's Dracula, though. Like, he, he can come back, you know. <laughs> There's <Right>. always a way. <laughs> now, it's funny that you mentioned uh, earlier that this was originally known as The Fear of Frankenstein. I remember reading about that. I have There's this great book that British cult cinema put out called Hammer Frankenstein uh, that goes through the basically the production of each of the films, uh, chapter by chapter. And I was going over the chapter again for Evil of Frankenstein, and they noted that, again, it was... Uh, Originally known as The Fear of Frankenstein, and then it became this. It was originally developed at Columbia before it wound up at Universal. And then, you know, they were allowed to use the uh, the designs and kind of story elements from the original Universal movies. Um, but I was wondering, like, what do you think? If that title had stuck, what would the fear be? You know, w- w- would it be the fear that he struck into the hearts of others? Would it be the fear that he carries within himself? And if so, where would that come from? I mean, we can't really say because the movie doesn't exist, but that's something I've always kind of been curious about ever since I first heard it. I, I think it's, I mean, it's hard to know, right? Because that script could be dramatically different from what we ended up getting. I, I think in this movie, if it were called that, 
I would see it more as like the fear that's because it's told from his perspective, um, like we talked about earlier, the fear that the townspeople are sort of have of him and and it's what's causing them to sort of take advantage of him and, you know, rob him of his status and his things and his creation. Um, so I think fear of Frankenstein begets a misunderstanding of Frankenstein, which is what is sort of occurring in this movie, right? From his perspective. Yeah, I, I buy that. I can see that. I, I almost wonder, title-wise, you know, the first movie, The Curse of Frankenstein, fine, that works. Mm-hmm. The second movie, The Revenge of Frankenstein, and then this one, The Evil of Frankenstein, I almost feel like those titles could be interchangeable. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the second movie easily could be the evil of Frankenstein. And this movie, more than most, even though it's not necessarily his revenge, in a way it is, you know, there there is more Frankenstein revenge in this film than there ever was in the second film. Oh, I got to ask, guys, how. How do we feel about this monster design? I mean, I know that a big conceit of this movie was that they finally got access to recreate the universal Karloff-esque Frankenstein's monster look. But I, of the Hammer monster designs, it's not my favorite. Like, I, I think in terms of if you're at the drive-in or you're at a 42nd Street theater, it has exactly that kind of zhuzh that you want, but it's clunky. I mean, I feel for the actor that's in there because all <laughs> all you see are his eyes heavily mascaraed through pounds of latex and what, what maybe is paper mache. Um, I don't know. I, I I think that trying to lean too hard into the the universal Karloff of it all didn't work. Yeah, I I, I actually agree, and I mean it's interesting. Because I know that, like, from everything I've read and heard, Roy Ashton spent, like, weeks doing all kinds of different drawings to try to create a more interesting version of the Karloff makeup. Um, And then producers were just like, no, make it more like that. And finally, they just sort of opened to a page and pointed to one of his drawings and said, do that. (laughs) And and it kind of looks like a static paper mache mask. So, I mean, that's it. Like you said, there's no emotionality to it. And that's probably the biggest issue is that there's no all of the other Frankensteins have a pretty decent emotionality to them to where you sort of feel empathy for that creature. Now, I will say Kiwi Kingston was a wrestler who had never acted before and apparently wasn't a particularly good actor. So it might have been purposeful that they covered up uh, uh, his face entirely because he was really casted specifically for his build. You know, he was a six foot five inch wrestler. Uh, that, like I said, had never actually appeared in anything before this. So um, apparently a nice guy, but (laughs) he does, you know, whenever we see him from afar, whenever he is uh, sort of filling a doorway or whenever he's haunting a background, I think he does really, he cuts a striking figure, but man, whenever, whenever we have a close up, whenever we can sort of see the eyes behind the rigid, Again, Paul, I think you caught it like paper mache. Like you can tell it's essentially a mask, you know, it, it just, yeah. it blows me away that we are what something like probably 30 years out from the original James Whale film. 
And not only could they not better the Jack Pierce design, they couldn't even equal it here. No, I think that especially to we're three movies into this franchise, the Hammer version, and Christopher Lee playing the monster in the first one imbued that kind of pathos that we needed. Uh, whereas there's really not a lot of emoting going on here at all, which is unfortunate, especially if you're you if you're using makeup to recall perhaps the most motive emotive Frankenstein monster in history. Uh, mm-hmm. Where I think that that Hammer really kind of started getting its stride with the monsters that Frankenstein creates is they just kind of leaned into the fact that in the later sequels, all right, well, he made this kind of monster already. Let's see him change the design, build up, build upon the design. Uh, and, and that's what I like about the later ones. Even if the stories go wildly askew, I sort of love that the David Prowse monster in Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell has this kind of gorilla grod giant like apes <laughs> yeah because yeah. at least you're just like okay he has built a creature before this is not even the the third or fourth creature this is him being like all right let's see what we can do and <laughs> i like that i want to see a change in and this just kind of felt like stagnation more than anything yeah, well, kind of like you know, it goes back to me to like his arc as a character too. Frankenstein, that is like, I, I wonder if his creatures can be tied to who he is at that point in his career. You know, early on he has that sort of villainous ambition, and he just wants to make life. You know, and so it is kind of like this awful hodgepodge where he just throws things together and sews them up. But you know, you get to kind of the midpoint of the franchise, not this one obviously, but you know, you think of something like Frankenstein created woman, or even must be destroyed. You know, it, it, he's a little more measured. You know, when he's a decent man, I think you can see that he has sort of the patience of a craftsman at that point. You know, we go from villainous ambition to, you know, a craftsman's patience to by the time we get to the later movies, there's kind of a desperation there. And the desperation of him being kind of a lifelong failure. You know, he makes it to old age having never really. Uh, uh, gotten to where he wanted to be and never having achieved his goals. And it's amazing, too. That's why I love this franchise so much, too, is we 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 start the franchise with him as a child and we end with him as an old man and we cover, you know, every moment in between. I, I can't think of many horror franchises where that's the case, where that's true. Maybe well, Psycho? True, but I mean, also... Frankenstein's fall over the the course of this franchise is really remarkable because like you said we not only meet him as a child in in the beginning but he's aristocracy he is somebody he is he's a member yeah. of society and by the end uh you know when we get to Frankenstein and the monster from hell he's creating his monster from prison he's a super villain who is locked away and is using <laughs> the means of of whatever he has available to him in the prison. His hands have been burned. He can't do the surgery himself. So once again, he has some sort of strapping twink sidekick who's doing it for him. <laughs> and So true. And it's like his fall from grace is both truly gothic storytelling and kind of like Batman villain all at once. And it's like kind of great. We don't... we. We live his life with him over the course of these films. Yeah. I was wondering, you mentioned a couple of times about his sidekicks. I was wondering what your read on Frankenstein is, given that 
you know, obviously the relationship he has in the first movie, obviously the uh, the unfortunate uh, the unfortunate sequence with Veronica Carlson later on in uh, Must Be Destroyed. Overall, franchise wise, what is your reading on Frankenstein and his sexuality? Um, you know, what's interesting uh, is that the Veronica Carlson sequence, it, since you brought it up, it, it must be destroyed. There's a scene of sexual assault slash aggression between Frankenstein and Ver Veronica Carlson, which was studio mandated. It was not in the script. Anthony Hines didn't want it. Peter Cushing didn't want it. Veronica Carlson didn't want it. But they felt like Hammer was becoming like the fuddy-duddy of horror because we had already moved into the era of 70s grindhouse exploitation, I spit on your graves kind of things, and they felt like American audiences wanted more. And they had this scene kind of very shoehorned in, and it feels shoehorned in. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, even though it's in the movie, so it, it arguably is part of continuity and, and should be dissected as such, it's interesting to sort of look at the trajectory of Frankenstein's sexuality. I'm actually reading a book right now written by Kirsten White, who is, is a great uh, young adult and fantasy novelist called The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein. And it just was coincidental. That that's what I'm reading. Okay, while... making a note of that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that I am reading it when you invited me to come talk about this movie. But it, it is <laughs> told from her perspective and I'm trying to at least separate like what I'm reading in this book from the Hammer uh, films. But one thing that seems to be very consistent about Frankenstein is, yes, he has this romance with Elizabeth, kind of. It's almost like she's there and this is what society expects. And he knows that, but he's more invested in himself. I, if anything... The queer read that I apply usually applies to his assistants. I almost feel like Victor Frankenstein is is almost asexual. Yeah. He 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 is less interested in sex and more lustful for the pursuit of knowledge. No orgasm, no physical or carnal relationship will ever equal tapping into whatever that secret is and he can he himself can only get that secret he's in love with himself more than anything yeah. but he keeps having these people who are infatuated with him whether it's elizabeth or you know we're in this movie and i made reference to to hans and how hans is presented here there's a whole scene where frankenstein says to hans why do you stay with me and this, to me, if you want to talk about queer subtext, if you want to peel the layers back of what's going on there, Hans is like, oh, it's because you know stuff. No. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, yes. <laughs> but, like, if someone is that detriment, like, if you are likely to go destitute, run afoul from the law, when there's a world of other scientists out there, it, it is not just that. We see Hans, like, hinging on everything that... Frankenstein, he will follow him to the end of the earth because he's obsessed with him. Frankenstein could give a shit if Hans is there, whereas Hans's whole world is Frankenstein. There's, there is something there. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to be the person to be like, that's Hans is in love with Frankenstein, but I'm not going to say that he's not, you know? No, I think that's fair. I, uh, you know, and it's curious too. I, I agree with you entirely when it comes to, uh, Frankenstein. I wonder if that read holds true with uh, Ralph Bates's take on the character in the horror of Frankenstein, because there it seems like, you know, he was a complete hound who couldn't wait to bed everyone in that film, you know? 
Well, I, c- I consider that movie so outside of the, <laughs> the the Cushing movies. I mean, it is a, is a great Hammer curiosity, but I th- I think that they thought they were going to reboot the franchise for a new generation of viewers. Uh, I also don't know uh, and can't speak to like what Ralph Bates' demands on the characters were, but I kind of view Peter Cushing as very much a journeyman sort of uh, actor where it wouldn't have bothered him to play Frankenstein as asexual. I, I, I don't think that if you had said to Peter Cushing, this guy maybe is a little fae or a little this, I'm sure he would have said, okay, great. Like, you know, I, I will Shakespearean my way through it and, and yeah. tell that tale. Whereas someone like Ralph Bates, who, who definitely was a different kind of hammer leading man. And this is not to disparage him at all. Uh, he kind of came into the era of Hammer where the sexuality was important. You know, he he wanted to play the characters who had the sexual aggressiveness, whether it's in this or Dr. Jekyll's Sister Hyde or whatever. Um, so I think they're totally different reads on the characters. And um, Jimmy Sangster wrote Horror of Dracula and uh, Horror of Frankenstein. And um, that movie is very, very much his kind of movie. This is the guy who wrote the lust of drag of the lust of the vampire and a lot of the more, <laughs> a lot of the more horny <laughs> hammer movies. So of course, you yeah, know. he was keen on hammer glamor. Definitely. For sure. Speaking of hammer glamor, uh, this, this scene and the, the, <laughs> the low cut dress is, yeah. Is this the, well, no, it's surely not, but, I, I it, much like you know the previous episode, Paul and I talked about the um, oh the something something of the Mummy's Tomb. I admit that I'm not a huge fan of it. Paul, help me out here. Was it the curse of the Mummy's Tomb? The curse. It's I'm the a curse few drinks in at this point. You know, much <laughs> as <fine>. that, <laughs> much as that was the first movie that I can recall that really seemed to be overt with the violence and gore. I mean, my God, it opens with a hand being lopped off with no cuts, and kind of impressively so. This movie definitely seems to be, you know, I, I, I just love this shot with Burgomaster and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, enjoying the sight of his uh, his young lady's uh, ample cleavage, you know. And I don't think that anything has been as overt sexually in anything that Hammer had done up until this point. Not that I can think of anyway. Uh, what, this is 64? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. They they start getting a little more uh cheeky a bit. Yeah, cheeky. That's a great word. I was I was going to say envelope pushy, but that that was the like uh, <laughs> apparently the red wine's working over here too. Um, <laughs> it, yeah, I mean there's there's some things cuz there's some stuff in Curse of the Werewolf with um uh what the actress's name who's the mute at the beginning that's uh, kind of um, she's pretty scantily clad in a similar way. I mean, but there's not a sense of humor to it. You know what I mean? I think that's the difference. I think some of that comes from Freddie Francis's direction where he's sort of, it's more self-aware than it's been in the past. And it's also interesting that you have Katie Wilde in this movie as sort of another main character who, who does not fit the hammer glamor mold at all. You know, she's a completely different kind of lead. No, I agree. It, it keeps her as, you know, I think she's referred to as the beggar girl. And the movie totally sees her as a girl. Like, I, I don't think there's, well, I know there's no point in the movie where they try to sexualize her at all, which, I, you know, thankfully. But 
You know, it's funny that you mentioned that though. The uh, the beggar girl. You know, we talk about loose continuity. I mentioned earlier, and I do believe this. That this film feels as though it could equally be a loose sequel to the Universal films as it could be a loose sequel to the Hammer films. I wonder if the beggar girl, given that she had an experience in her past with a creature that obviously traumatized her, I wonder if she was ever at any point meant to be somewhat of an analog to the uh, uh, the little girl by the lake in Wales film. You know, the James Whale film back in 31. The, it's it's interesting you bring that up because now, you know, a lot of Hammer movies had TV versions, right? Like in the uh, US. And this one is no exception. And the TV version was padded out to a couple hours. So they shot about three or four additional sequences. And the sequences they shot now, again, it's no one really knows who wrote them or directed them. And it's doubtful that Hammer was involved. Um, <laughs> certainly not, uh, you know, uh, Heinz or Freddie Francis. But the scenes they added basically explain Katie Wilde and give her a name. So her name's Rena in those in those sequences, whether or not you consider them canon. Um, and basically, yeah, an event when she was like seven year, years old causes her to go mute, which is her an encounter with Frankenstein's monster. So, like, they they build in a narrative reason for her to be the way she is. Does um, she have flowers? Is she near a lake? I don't. It, the, the TV cut is on the Scream Factory Blu-ray. Um, and I sort of skimmed through it, but, um, I, I don't remember the, I, I don't remember flowers, but I, I do know that it's, she was, I read that she was supposed to be at seven or eight and it looks right. Um, and yeah, so, I mean, I found that kind of fascinating that, that, that was sort of added in, but again, that was all shot in the U S by universal. So it could have just been universal trying to sort of connect those dots in the same way that that you're connecting the dots. Um, but it is interesting. They went in that direction. Cause I think that makes sense. Now I kind of wish we'd had that scene, you know, kind of imagine if the movie had opened with, uh, you know, and this is not a criticism, the worst way to criticism, a movie uh, criticize. Oh, holy shit. The 99 proof butter shots are, uh, kicking in. <laughs> Excuse me. It's <laughs> the worst this way is, to criticism. No we, doubt. We <laughs> with all the with all the talk about critics these days on Twitter. Oh my God, have you guys? Paul, because well, you know the critic does more than the artist. I mean, Roddy, have you seen that shit take? On uh, well, today? not only did I see it, I actually did a, a Frankenstein parody of it. Um, I don't know if you saw. <laughs> No, I haven't. I need to look. I saw up. it. I saw it before we started recording, and I've like never loved a tweet more than that. I'll, I'll, I'll read it. If you're familiar with the original tweet, what I said was, "A good monster always puts more into their spooky work than the mad scientist put into making it. The si- <laughs> the scientist only creates. The monster must plumb that creation and also be monstrous to deliver the full volume of the horror, while also creating a thing of beastie clarity itself." <laughs> Dude, that that is without a doubt my favorite tweet. <laughs> okay, to to explain to listeners out there, there was uh, at the time of this recording, it's Monday the twenty fifth. There was a critic who put up online basically the notion that uh, guys, what would you say? He was essentially arguing that uh, the work of the critic 
is such that they do more work than those who create the work that they're critiquing. Is that pretty much it? Yeah, yeah, essentially. Now, let me weigh in on this as someone who works as a filmmaker and has for a very long time. Um, <laughs> you know, no. <laughs> 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 and, and, and and here's the deal. I I I am of sort of the mind that like the world of criticism is very important. It leads people to art. It leads people to film. I understand its place, but it, it essentially is broken down to this. When I make something, and I'm I'm going to just kind of like use this in a hypothetical sense. I'm not necessarily speaking about me making a movie, but like when I make something, I literally am creating something out of nothing. There is a process. Whereas the critic needs me to create something first for them to then respond. There's an action and a reaction. Critique is a reactionary craft. Filmmaking or art or, you know, whatever is an action. So ipso facto, you cannot, as a critic, be superior to the art that you are creating because even if you hate it, you still need it to have something to talk about. And that's just true. That's not disparaging either side. It's just if you if an artist doesn't create a thing, a critic has nothing to talk about. So it's like, how can the critic's work be more important than the artist? It makes no sense. Yeah. And when it comes to the blank page, too, I, I, piggybacking on what you said, like I. You know, I, I, I've written hundreds of reviews. Holy shit, I'm slurring now. My God. It's okay. It's Thumbs okay. up, folks, for the 99 you know, butterscotch is it, shots. Is it bad um, that... Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like, I piggybacking on what Mr. Barati said, the... As a critic, you know, I, I, I've done hundreds of reviews for, like, Dread Central back in the day and some for Bloody Disgusting, and I've also just written screenplays and short stories. You know, those are two different blank pages that I've stared at before, you know, before I started typing. One is a hell of a lot harder to start on than the other. You know, I when you talk about reaction, you're absolutely right. You have something to go from. You have a base, whereas... You know, the, the, the feeling of creating from uh, scratch, you know, is is terrifying at times. I've never felt terror as a critic. I've never felt uncertainty as somebody who wrote a review, you know. So the idea that this guy is so obviously full of himself that he considers himself even equal to, let alone better than the movies that he critiques, whether he liked them or not, is just utterly fucking absurd. Well, and ultimately it, it, it creates this sort of falsehood that there needs to be an antagonism between the two. I, I have been very lucky in, make, in doing the work that I do. Uh, you know, I consider myself a working writer. And what that means is I get to, to write for a lot of different places People don't necessarily always know my name, and I don't necessarily need them to. I get to tell stories for a living, and that's that's the joy. But with that comes reviews. With that comes encounters with critics. And I don't understand this, this idea that it has to be an antagonistic relationship. The reality is, is when you make art, some people like it, and some people don't. And that's okay. I have had good reviews. Of course, every artist 
loves a good review. If someone says that they don't read their reviews and they don't like the good reviews or they don't care, they're lying because it's always nice. <laughs> well, no, it's true. It's always nice when someone likes a thing that you made. That's true. Absolutely. It was true when we did macaroni art in kindergarten. It's true when we make a movie, you know, as adults. It, it's 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 nice to know that people like something you've done. But sometimes people aren't. And if you are, you know, at least aware enough to realize that you have created something that certain people are going to be attracted by and other people aren't, you can sort of live with that fact. Uh, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I always say that I would rather people kind of be divisive on a movie that I made than just sort of be like, eh. At least you felt something, whether you liked it or not. I mean, the reality is when I've made a movie – and it really, really, like, someone hates it, in a way, it's still kind of a compliment. Because you're telling me that my 80-minute movie ruined your whole day? Like, <laughs> like you're, you're giving me way more credit than I deserve. Like, I'm sitting here in a, a hoodie and jammy pants right now, and, 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 and you're fired up about this? So, you know... If if you fire off three thousand words because you're upset, you're still talking about a thing that I made. Again, yeah. it's you know, so it's like thank you. you know? It's such a good point, and you know, I I wrote a movie years ago that got made, and like most of the reviews were terrible. <laughs> and you know, reading those, it was funny to to read some of that stuff. You know, on this like seventy two minute basically student film. Uh, that somehow got like a wider release and and you kind of wonder you know you're like because a lot of times the critic doesn't have to consider the confines under which the movie was made you know and and all of the very and and they shouldn't have to for sure but you know there's lots of sometimes in criticism there are like personal accusations against the people who made the art you know like oh this is what what were they thinking they must hate their audience things like that and there's a lot of there is an antagonism there, but but I always think about when I come to criticism, and this is a weird poll for a Hammer podcast, but the movie Top Ratatouille, the movie Ratatouille, the Pixar film, uh, at the end, uh, Anton Ego's little speech. Uh, I, I I hope you're both uh, familiar with Ratatouille, so I don't oh, sound yeah. like an idiot. Um, but and I I don't know the speech perfectly, but basically at the end of the movie, the 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 food critic basically has a speech where he talks about the work of the critic, and he basically says that you know it's 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 easy to be a critic because we we don't risk very much, but we enjoy sort of a position over those who do risk a great amount for their work and offer themselves up for judgment. Um, and he also talks about how critics thrive on negativity or negative criticism because it's fun to write and it's fun to read. Yeah. Uh, and I find that really interesting. And then he talks about, but the, the truth of it all is that in the great scheme of things, the average piece of garbage or the average piece of bad art in their eyes is more meaningful than the criticism that designates it as such. Uh, well, and I think that's very profound. And I would also, you know, you, you're using Ratatouille as the example. I will also, <laughs> I will also bring up a movie that is very uh, a, a far afield from Hammer. But this is what I always think about. 
and basically what I'm going to say is that audience matters and critics can't speak to all kinds of audiences. And, uh, it is in addition to my great love of hammer, it is very much on the public record that I am a huge fan of the killer tomato movies. Um, (laughs) because when I was a kid, the first real like horror movie air quotes, double feature I ever saw on USA up all night was attack of the killer tomatoes. And Return of the Killer Tomatoes. And I, I, that was what set me on the path of like, I want to see all of these kinds of outlaw films and underground movies. And I was obsessed with them. And years later, I managed to sit down with John DeBello, who created those films. And for people who don't know, there are four films in that franchise. Killer, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, Return of the Killer Tomatoes, Killer Tomatoes Strike Back, and Killer Tomatoes Eat France. And we were... <laughs> and, And we were talking about Killer Tomatoes Eat France. And he told me that, and they they somehow got a grant to shoot in France. So, you know, it was was no small budget. And uh, there's a sequence where the main characters are stuck on like a little boat in the river. And they're trying to get the attention of someone on shore. And they grab a bell and they start ringing it. And someone on the shore says, who's that ringing in the Seine? Uh, Very geographical joke. He thought it was funny and was just like, this is going to kill. The night of the premiere in Hollywood, this joke comes up and nobody makes a sound. (laughs) In in, in like this feature audience. And and, And he said, and then a beat later... One old guy in the audience just started cracking up <laughs> and, and wouldn't stop laughing. And he told me, he was like, and you know what? In that moment, I realized, all right, I made the movie for that guy. Yeah. And that was such a eye-opening experience as a creator for me because it sort of was like, always make the movie for that guy. Whether... Yeah. Whether that guy is two, whether those two are 10 and those 10 are 100, don't worry about the people who decry it or put it down or, you know, whatever, you know, for funsies want to go online and post about how terrible it is. Because especially in this world of genre film, and, and you guys know this, living within this world, movies that the mainstream doesn't love are still somebody's favorite movie. And yeah. so if you're at a convention, if you're at a screening and you're the the filmmaker of Death Spa, which you know is beaten up in the in the in the press, but someone's like, "Wow, this movie is my favorite movie." You made it for them. You didn't make it for the critic who hated it. You made it for them. Audience matters. They it really does. Yeah. I think it's beautiful. I agree. I do wonder, now that we've talked about this, if any creator ever suffered under the weight of critics and their scorn any more than Frankenstein. You know, what What are the mobs with their pitchforks and uh, uh, torches than, uh, you know, modern-day web critics, I think? True, true, but bringing it full circle, for every pitchfork-wielding villager, there's a Hans who's like... <laughs> <laughs> He's making it for Hans. Yeah, who's I, like I, dewy-eyed, like, please make more, sir, you know. <laughs> I love that. I, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that, though. 
much you know i've always wondered this about batman and robin how much does batman actually need a sidekick he has the body of an olympian he is the greatest detective that ever was he's he's the ultimate you know uh crime fighter and superhero without benefit of superpowers how much does he need a robin does he need a sidekick or does he need somebody to adore him? And I'm wondering if the same is true of Frankenstein. Does that man who is actually able, even for all of his wonky attempts and how awful they can go at times, he is a man who can create life with his bare hands. Does he need a Hans to help uh, him and assist him? You know, aside from the events of the, you know, the final 20 minutes of Revenge of Frankenstein aside, or does he just need somebody to adore him? Does he need uh, that kind of love? You know, honestly, I, I was not prepared for this question, but as I, I am not necessarily a Marvel kid, but I grew up with DC Comics, probably evidenced by my early reference of Superman, The Quest for Peace. Um, <laughs> but I all I always loved the DC Comics, and I, I still to this day read them. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very nerdily aware that there has been not one, not two, but I believe four or five Robins now. Oh. And I think that the thing about Robin more significantly than a sidekick is that Bruce Wayne is not well. Bruce Wayne is a person driven by a singular goal. And that goal is, is rage. And by having Robin, it humanizes him. It reminds him that there's still a world and it tethers him back to his humanity. And so in this allegory, uh, Hans, despite wanting the knowledge that Frankenstein has much like Dick Grayson, Tim Drake, uh, you know, Jason Todd wanting the knowledge of Batman. Batman needs them far more than they need Batman because without them, Batman is, is, is inhuman and without a human tether, Frankenstein is not human. He, he, he cannot relate to people. And so he needs a Hans. He needs an Elizabeth. He needs a beggar girl who apparently never got to have a name. Um, it's it's just I, I I kind of view it as like that kind of desperate grabbing for what they don't have. It, and I think it also, like you said, it reminds him that you know he he that the world like the world sees him as a villain. Right through most of the films, well, through all the films after the first 30 minutes of the first one. Um, and I think having a person with him that sort of worships his intellect and what he's attempting to do uh, bolsters his confidence in himself, right? Because, you know, as you so, uh, you know, as you pointed out earlier, he, he sort of has a love affair with it, with himself. That's kind of. I totally agree with that. And I think it's a great read, but I think he needs someone else to represent um, an intellectual community that respects him and sees him as somebody who's capable of changing the world. Um, and it, it's, it's a necessary component of his ability to see himself as the brilliant scientist that he would like to think that he is. Yeah, absolutely. To have someone standing there saying like, no, you are doing this for a reason really yeah. gives validity to that journey. Gentlemen, with that, I'm going to hop off of here for two minutes. I'm going to make another drink. Not that I need any more. 
but I wow. just want another one. So that's uh, jinx. You know, we support you, and we I want you to be happy. So I appreciate that. Uh, which which <laughs> do I go with? Uh, I I will leave it to you guys. Do I do I go with the salted caramel white Russian, or do I go with the uh, more ninety nine proof butterscotch and Bailey's? Um, what is going to be more difficult to make? Um. Ooh, probably the white Russians. Uh, maybe I should go with the ninety-nine proof. I can't swear that I will be coherent by the end of this commentary, <laughs> but that might make it That's a fine. bit more of an enjoyable listen. So maybe we'll, I'm hoping maybe... that you reveal some deep personal thing about yourself like you normally do. So you know, go ahead. Paul, and we're an hour one. and thirty-seven minutes in. This may be the greatest commentary that we have ever done. It's... Possible. Do, in no small part, <laughs> actually, I think our commentaries entirely, are usually loosely commentaries. <laughs> yeah, no, I think due entirely to Mr. Verratti's presence. Oh yes, sir. Thanks so much. I Saving think this may be the single greatest commentary we've done. Uh, we haven't broken from the movie really that much at all. I haven't revealed any deep, dark personal secrets. Or, I talked uh, about Ratatouille. You know, self-loathing. So <laughs> no, but, I, but we brought it all back, which I think did. is great. Yeah, like, you're right. You know, right. From, that's a good the, point. The criticism of Frankenstein. We even made Batman and Robin make sense to what's happening here. That's <laughs> true. That's true. See, yeah, Mike, Michael's like taking Jinx's crazy asides and making them make sense with the film, and I appreciate okay, see, that. See, Paul, I don't even feel attacked there. You're not I attacked. We should, yeah, but we, you know, there's, there's a lot of love in the room right now. Well, well, I I will tell you a thought that I had. If we're going to go a little wildly askew, while we were talking about Batman, Batman would not like Victor Frankenstein because most of Batman's rogues gallery are PhDs. No one ever talks about that. No one ever talks about the fact that 90% of the people that Batman is against are doctors, and he's just a crazy rich guy. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, no, yeah. Batman Batman would beat the shit out of Peter Cushing. That's a fact. Yes. Well, unless Peter Cushing could outsmart him, right? Which he could, because he's Peter <laughs> Cushing. Let's be honest here. That's Nobody's beating Peter Cushing on Peter Cushing's watch. Um, okay, I will be back, gentlemen. Uh, in the meantime, Paul... Try your best to sell Mr. Verratti on being a third co-host uh, permanently. Just throwing that out there. Okay, I'll be back. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, well, it's it's fun to hang out in the Hammer Pub. <laughs> this is great. Um, wait, so is this weekly? Yes. So we typically, um, yeah, we've, we've been doing it sort of Monday nights. So this is our normal recording night. And we're just kind of going through the Hammer horror movies in order. Um, and yeah, we're on, on this one. So it's Jinx and I have been doing it for a while. I don't know. I don't know how many episodes we've done. Like, uh, well, if this is 1964 and you started back at the beginning, you're a good decade or two in at this point. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, we started with, um, uh, curse. So we started when, with a curse of Frankenstein, when things started really kicked off. Sure. Um, and then, uh, you know, kind of went from there. But Hammer, I mean, for me, because I'm kind of a latecomer to Hammer or to horror in general, really, it was like my late teenage years. I wasn't one of those kids that like grew up watching horror movies. In fact, I was like terrified of them um, and like purposefully avoided them. Like if I was at a sleepover and someone put on a scary movie, I like slept in the other room. Like I was so uh, like against watching horror and I think that's why when I finally got there, I was super into it because it felt sort of dangerous even when I was older because <laughs> I had spent my whole life avoiding it. 
um, and eventually found my way to gothic horror and like Vincent Price movies and Roger Corman movies, like the the Corman Price Edgar Allan Poe cycle kind of actually led me to Hammer, even though they're not Hammer movies. Um, because it makes they sense kind of, though. Yeah, right. And then I found Hammer, and I was like, "Oh shit, I'm in love. <laughs> this is this is it." <laughs> well, it's interesting and, uh, that you talk about being afraid, though, because uh, on my now retired podcast, well, retired for the time being, uh, I would I would sit and interview horror creators, and a lot of the stories were very similar, and that many many people were afraid of these movies, and then kind of became obsessed with myself included i was very much a scaredy cat i always used to uh if the music would change i would run over and turn off the tv much to my parents chagrin i'd be like no absolutely not um yeah but i I think there are a couple different ways to sort of deal with that fear and and you know some people just never get into the horror genre and then other people become sort of obsessed by it and you like your kind of trepidation becomes an obsession where you start wanting to know about it and that's that's what happened to me. And I kind of I dipped my toe in because of late night cable with things like USA Up All Night and Monster Vision. And then next thing I knew, I was like, I want to know everything about it because it was sort of like seizing the forbidden. Um, so when people say they came to horror a bit later because they were scared as kids, I, I'm always like, well, yeah, like so many people were many, many horror creators who made franchises that people are obsessed with wouldn't even watch this stuff until they were 16, 17, 18 years old. So yeah, that's that's actually really heartening to hear um, because, like, I always feel a bit odd man out, you know, because it, t- it took me a while to catch up to a lot of movies that, like, everyone had seen, you know, like, I I always felt like I was trying to, I'd be like, oh, I haven't seen that yet. And they're like, oh, that's a classic. And I'm like, ah, you know, I feel like there's so many classics that I haven't caught up to. Um, but in a way, that's also like a plus because I always have something to look forward to, you know, Um but yeah, I was, I, I, I had a, I think everyone has that horror movie experience when they're really young, whether you like horror or not, when, when you're young, that sort of traumatized you that either drew you in or pushed you away. And, uh, you know, for me, it was, uh, at my aunt's house one night I woke up and child's play was somehow on TV, either on like HBO or something. And I caught like a segment of it. Right after my uncle had like changed the channel from a news program. So, and it was like the battery sequence where the mom finds the doll and it comes alive without the batteries in it. And in my little like six year old brain, I thought that was like part of the news. So I somehow convinced myself that that was like a video in, in the news of a doll coming alive and attacking someone. And Chucky just completely like I couldn't sleep all night. I was crying. I was screaming, begging to be taken home. My my aunt could not console me. And like for years, I would not watch anything like I had a my buddy doll. (laughs) This is probably dating myself, but I had a my buddy doll and I went home and like made my parents get rid of it, like made them give it away to a (laughs) to a friend's family (laughs) because I wouldn't have that doll in my house anymore. I missed some stuff. Yeah, like I, is... I started talking about Child's Play. See, this is true Hammer Pub content right here. Nice. Um, but yeah, so like Chucky to this day is like one of the scariest things to me just because of that experience. Well, and <laughs> it's funny that you say that today of all days because today is Don Mancini, who is the creator of Chucky's birthday. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, wow. See, happy birthday, Don Mancini. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. amazing. 
<laughs> I love that franchise. I, I, I love, love the franchise. movie now. Yeah, I mean, like, it's no, I mean, if anything, it's like the best compliment I can give that film. <laughs> can I go ahead and go on record and say that I think Seed of Chucky is woefully maligned and actually kind of a masterpiece? Um, I absolutely agree. I will also say that the one thing I really love about the Child's Play franchise, and I do think it is in no small part to Don's hand and everything, is yeah. that the entire franchise is canon. You yes. know, at yeah, any at any point in any of the major slashers, someone reboots it or like, let's ignore this sequel or blah, 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 blah. Because Don Mancini has been involved from the first movie all the way through Cult, you know, the remake notwithstanding, uh, they all tie in. And I I think that even though Seed is sort of one of the outliers because it's more comedic, it took some big swings, uh, that when he came back for Curse and Cult and still made sure that that was part of the, the story... Yeah. Not only does it give Seed more impact, but I love Seed. I think it's fun. I think it's the movie that he always wanted to make. It's it's whimsical. It's wild. I love that John Waters is in it. Like, say, the John like, Waters cameo is like so glorious. <laughs> no, it's a great sequel, and it, yeah. I I am a hundred percent with you both. Uh, it, it deserves all the love. Um, and this is one of those where uh, critics were wrong. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I remember yeah. when it came out, and even audiences did not flock to see it. I was working in a movie theater at the time, and we even had these amazing uh, cut-out Chucky masks that Rogue Studios sent along uh, with the little eye holes and the straps and everything where you could go and watch your movie and wear a Chucky mask while doing so. And we had – stacks of them left over because we simply didn't sell enough tickets to the movie. It broke my heart. And I, you know, it it had been so long since Bride had come out. I was a little bummed that it had taken so long. And admittedly, like maybe my excitement to see it wasn't quite as high as it had been to see Bride. But nevertheless, when I watched it, I was just like, this is fucking great. And uh, it, it kind of blew me away. Not only, maybe not so much that mainstream critics didn't get it because why would they? But even to see the horror community kind of shrug at it, it was a little bit disheartening. And, you know, living in Los Angeles and in Hollywood, I get real tired when everyone's got like, well, I was at this event, blah, 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 blah. Because sure, like, you know, just like welcome to the landscape. (laughs) But I will will say that one of my favorite moments was I I got to go to the premiere of Cult of Chucky. And um And, you know, everybody was there and they had like the Chucky doll in the lobby. And, you know, Don was there. Jennifer Tilly was there. uh, And and just plus, you know, horror people, Nancy Allen, et cetera, et cetera. And it was so great to see it with that crowd because everybody got it. Everybody was celebrating. And, And just those movies are a party. And if you don't if you don't show up to party then you're kind of missing the fun and (laughs) and seeds of chucky like if it's like six really great parties in the row that's like the party where things got a little weird and don't you want to be at the party where things got a little weird (laughs) that is such a good way of of sort of contextualizing the seed of chucky like it's so true Well, like, I I didn't see Seed of Chucky, God, to be honest, until a few years ago. <laughs> like, I, I came to it pretty recently. I watched the franchise sort of 
in a row. I had seen the original, but like the first three, but I, I had never seen Bride. I'd never seen Seed. And when I think it was when um, uh, Curse came out, when I marathoned the movies. And I, I was expecting Seed to sort of disappoint me just based on the, you know, I guess what I had heard and its reputation. And I watched it and I was like, this is such a fun. I just didn't understand. I I just, I was like, what, what am I either not understanding why it isn't good or why everyone else just isn't seeing the movie I'm seeing. And I don't know. I, I think in some ways too, the movie was a bit ahead of its time in terms of the meta humor. You know, I think it's it's so self-aware. I don't know that I think it was it was sort of further along than audiences were in some ways, as is the case a lot of times with movies that are that are really great. Um, You know, so I think I think in some ways it, it was if it had come out in the like aughts, you know, after like post 2010, if we had gotten a seat of Chucky, I think it would have been a huge success in some ways. Absolutely. Well, and here you go. You you were worried about going too far afield, but, <laughs> you know, Bride of Chucky is a great love letter to Universal Monster movies and specifically go. The Bride of Frankenstein. And what? I think part of the, the, the Child's Play uh, and Chucky franchise's great revitalization was the introduction of Tiffany and yes. sort of that, that knowing uh, wink to a greater monster family. And I I think that that's part of monster history. Like no matter what we have, once you get into sequels, it's got to get bigger and it's got to expand. And, you know, bringing it back to this movie, it's, it's not just about Frankenstein making his monster. It's about the ramifications. It's about the people whose lives are affected. And I, I think that that that's the DNA of, of an ongoing horror story. I love it. No, I agree entirely. It's very true. I uh, do wish, now that we're talking about it, that Hammer, specifically the Frankenstein cycle, had had its own seat of Chucky. Maybe Horror of Frankenstein is I mean, its Horror of Frankenstein's Chucky. a bit <laughs> off the rails in some ways. I'm ca- I- I would want them, though, much like Seat of Chucky, to have killed like a schlock director of the era. I want to see. <laughs> you- I want to see Peter Cushing accidentally like melt William Castle's face off. Like I was going to say, I, William I, Castle would be perfect <laughs> for that, <laughs> especially given his old Dark House remake, which you know isn't isn't my favorite. <laughs> no, but like, how far away are you guys from that? Because that's going to be a drunk night, I'm sure. Uh, oh, we we, we just did it, <laughs> and it was it was a very drunk night. What year was that? Uh, 60, I want to say 62 or 63. Yeah, I think 63. Maybe the wine has my my timeline off. There you go. (laughs) But it was a drunk night. You know, once the Noah's Ark shows up, it's all over. I mean, Jesus, that movie. (laughs) I can't even. (laughs) Which bums me out because, you know what? Every time I hear that movie, I want to recommend it to somebody based on the fact that it was Hammer and William Castle. It should have worked. yeah, That's peanut butter worked. and chocolate put together. It should have given us a Reese cup, and it didn't. <laughs> it was no Reese cup of a movie. No. I, th- I, I think if you had not, like, if you do not take the James Whale old Dark House into account, it's still kind of a fun caper, 
but it's it, it was an impossible to follow act, right honestly yeah, that's yeah. true that's true we're, we're holding it to impossible standards in some ways you know and so i think i also think that i wish that castle had been given a little more free reign than it sounds like he was like because it, it sounds like there was a bit of a combative relationship between him and the Carreras family in terms of what they wanted versus what he wanted. And well, it's also deeply fascinating because hammered very rarely did these sort of co-productions, you know, like for hammer to do a William castle movie was, was sort of an anomalous really. And we don't see this happening all that often, maybe yeah. with their Shaw brothers pairing later, but sure. Yeah. Which is a much amazing, later. Yeah. <laughs> which I love that movie. <laughs> I wish they had done more of that. I, you know, we got a hammer William castle movie. We got a hammer, you know, Shaw brothers movie. I yeah. wish they had gone further. I want to see a hammer black exploitation movie. You know, I want to see a hammer French new wave film. Just well, uh... <laughs> since we referenced earlier, the unquenchable thirst of Dracula, I do believe the intent was to do a Hammer Bollywood co-production with that. Yes. And, yeah. and because of uh, financing issues... And honestly, having both read the script and heard the audio that Mark Gatiss produced later, I don't know what movie they thought they were going to make, but like I, I, I sort of tangibly understand the budgets that Hammer was working with here. And the opening of Unquenchable Thirst of Dracula is very Agatha Christie. It takes place on a train. Uh, it's And it's like, it goes across like the Indian countryside. There's this whole like intrigue on a train. They get off the train, they go into Bombay. And you're just sort of like, when were you guys going to pay for this? Because, <laughs> you know, in, unless all of India is going to be a matte painting, I'm sure not, you know? <laughs> well, and I think that the other thing that sucks about that whole thing is that legend of the seven golden vampires, like was pretty successful in, you know, in Asia and in the UK and had it been successful in the U S they, they, it's very possible they would have gotten funding for, uh, for their India movie. But like the U S just completely screwed everything up because it, the movie got shelved then it got sold and it was like four or five years before it finally came out. And when it did come out, it was cut to hell, you know, it was like 20 minutes were cut. Then, like, they put in repeated scenes to pad out the runtime. So when it finally hit theaters in 79, it was a mess and it it wasn't very good. And then, you know, they were already filing for bankruptcy. But I wonder, I wonder if uh, Legend of Seven Golden Vampires had gotten a wide release in the time it was made. Like, because that was, that would have been perfect with the Kung Fu craze that was going on. Yeah. I really think that movie could have saved Hammer. I do too. And they had ups and downs certainly throughout their entire run. Like even at their height, you know, they were never, I think, too far away from potential failure. Even this movie, you know, I by this point in Hammer's history, from the reading that I did, they had already had two major failures with. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. They the Curse had a of the Werewolf box office bombs. Yeah, yeah. Curse I mean, of the Werewolf, the uh, Phantom of the Opera, Two Faces, Doctor Jekyll, like all of those were with, big bombs. With, Curse and Phantom, you know, that's a real shame because one of those is a really good movie. Hey, two of those are good and, movies. You, you, you know, shut one, your mouth. You shut your one, mouth. but, uh, you know, <laughs> then they tried doing psycho thrillers. They tried doing swashbucklers. I still haven't gotten around to those titles on that big Mill Creek set yet, but yeah, I just bought that set. It is curious that even before this movie came out, it looked like their time as a major horror studio had sort of come to an end. So 
you know, one wonders again, you know, Paul and I have talked about this on this podcast before, but yeah, you know, if Seven Golden Vampires had come through for them, if it had been released earlier, if it had been wide released, you know, if they hadn't gone out in the late 70s, honestly, I, I really do think they would have flourished in the 80s. You know, I, I understand why they floundered a bit in the 70s when everything took sort of a post Night of the Living Dead turn towards, you know, more naturalistic horror movies you know we had movies like texas chainsaw and whatnot things were a bit more gritty a bit more grindhouse but i think if they just stuck around until the 80s i don't think hammer ever would have gone away at all yeah because it's interesting and i know this is leaping very far ahead on the timeline but sort of their last major production of the of this kind of classic era is to the devil a daughter and um you know it was born out of a rosemary's baby exorcist sort of thing and you can see them kind of like eking towards the 80s it, it, it tried to be more sexual it tried to be more transgressive um and unfortunately it just didn't hit because it still maintains sort of that kind of like tightly buttoned sensibility that a lot of the early movies had and it, it felt a bit uh kind of chaotic i love that movie but i get also why if you you're coming off the heels, you know John Borman's out there making Heretic Exorcist Two, which is is so <laughs> me- metaphysically bananas, and you've got like all these other kind of movies that are just like pushing the boundaries of like you know the LSD audience, and it's just like okay, but also we're still making a movie about someone who's uh, giving birth to the devil's baby. Uh, <laughs> I think that it, it would have just. I wish they had held on too, you know, because I, I, I love, love all these movies. I don't really have a bad thing to say about even kind of like the weaker cuts, uh, but it is just, they were a product of their time for sure. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the idea, like buttoned up, you know, there is something kind of, even for the hammer glamour as it were, and you know, the plunging necklines and some of the sexuality and violence that came with the later movies. I, there is something kind of conservative about that studio, but how is it? that they can pull off feeling conservative even when they have, like, uh, a 14-year-old Nastasia Kinski, you know, uh, doing a full frontal scene in a movie. Like, how how is that even a thing? How... I I don't know that I would say their work in the 70s was all that conservative, you know? I I think... but even even (laughs) when it was at its least conservative, it still feels very, you know, I, I, I... it feels classical in some ways. Yeah, like, I, I think that's that's really the nail on the head. They were they always had a transgressive element, but it was always sort of in a almost classy academic way. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. But it's that. curious, even when they lean into Grindhouse, it never quite. It it feels like they wanted to go Grindhouse at times and just couldn't bring themselves to do it. Well, I, and it's true, and I see them, but when they do, it's always interesting. Like, I mentioned the Vampire Lovers, the first, you know, kind of really leaning into the lesbianism, Carmela of it all. Yeah. Um, that was groundbreaking, you know, if you want to look at the queer lens of horror cinema. And I know that I had a kind of Twitter back and forth with you guys a while back about Brides. I, I mean, I, I have invested a lot of time in in sort of discussing that Baron Meinster is a bride of Dracula. It is, it's not even subtextual. It's in the text. He is, I love that reading. he is, oh, yeah, left, you know, it, it's, he is left behind to finish Dracula's work. He is the, 
you know, alpha bride. He is Dracula's husband who goes forth and makes off. And I've always sort of thought that, and there's nothing in the movie that dissuades it. Like, because Dracula's whole thing is turning all these maidens in, that he has seduced into vampires. And then all of a sudden we're supposed to be led to believe that there was this acolyte who's this pretty boy with like, you know, living with his mom in a castle that Dracula was like, okay, you too. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we talk about these like missing installments and, you know, arguably like in between cools or something like that. I want that story. Like Titan comics, give me that. Give me the Meinster Dracula love story, you know? Well, what's really great, I don't know if you're familiar uh, with Kim Newman, who is not only a great reviewer. Anno Dracula. Yeah, in Kim Newman's Anno Dracula books, uh, Baron Meinster plays a very, very heavy part throughout several (gasps) of the books. I did not realize that. Where um, after the fall of Dracula, Meinster kind of tries to assume the place in the Transylvanian kind of uh, aristocracy is I was chosen by him. I was, I was one of his next in line and he leads sort of like the Dracula underground to kind of reclaim the throne of the vampire King Uh, sort of as, as, as the, the person left behind and Newman always writes Meinster as as a queer vampire, someone who is in love with Dracula and in love with the memory of him. And the other vampires kind of think he's sort of sad and a little pathetic, but it it's sort of not escaped other other people's attention that this character was fully devoted in a in a more than just platonic way to Dracula. Whereas Dracula maybe didn't give a shit about him one way or the other because that's who Dracula is. Uh, he he has been canonically made a kind of a, a conquest of Dracula's. Okay, it's worth noting in the sequence, I read that Peter Cushing insisted on doing his own sort of high-flying swinging stunt, and as a result, wound up getting third-degree burns. Peter Cushing sure loved to swing on a rope. I will say... <laughs> One of his favorite things, I think. Yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, speaking of Brides of Dracula, there's your full circle moment. Doesn't he like swing through the fire at the end of Brides as well? I can't. I remember he starts the fire. The big moment. Uh, the only thing that I can, even after I've watched it, as much as I love the movie, the when I think of Cushing in that movie, I think of him reversing his vampirism, and I yeah. think of him using the windmill to defeat Meinster. I those are the two single coolest moments that a Van Helsing caption on film ever had. I know, and isn't it wild that for the Van Helsing of it all, his greatest moments actually are not with him versus Dracula? Yeah. Yeah, you're right, yeah. I mean, that is, I mean, Brides of Dracula, and like I said, Brides of Dracula and Frankenstein Created Woman are my two favorite hammers. It's crazy to me, as much as I love Horror of Dracula, as much as I love Christopher Lee's Dracula, uh, Brides of Dracula is the best Dracula movie. Yeah. I love that it's two movies in one because it's that whole gothic drama with Meinster and his mom and then it's like and now here's a school of girls you know (laughs) (laughs) it does feel like two distinctly different things right like before even before Van Helsing ever shows up in that movie you have like a, a movie you're willing to just watch there's enough there a Hammer Film production produced at Bray Studios in I love it. 
I love yeah. it. Uh, we great... didn't even talk that much about Zoltan, if at all. <laughs> we didn't mention no, Zoltan. I, I don't the... think we mentioned Zoltan, no. At all. <laughs> the voice is... of Gollum in the Lord of the Rings cartoon. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's such a great character in this. And one who, uh, Paul, I think you mentioned it before, that this was uh, kind of loosely adapted from a Tales of Frankenstein episode, a television series that never actually made it there beyond the pilot. Um I, I, I love how he's kind of utilized in this. I love how the further the Frankenstein movies go, the crazier the uh, the, the sort of uh, – oh, the alcohol is hitting me hard now. I'm uh, – be, be coherent, Jinx, damn it. Um, the wilder the practices are that you know Frankenstein sort of engages in. I mean with this movie, it starts with – hypnotist you know by the time we get to frankenstein created woman he's transferring souls you know um but i i I sort of love how he so readily invites somebody into the process and then it kind of goes awry almost immediately you know yeah what i like about the character of zoltan i mean we, we mentioned that this movie is very evocative of the universal era and they, and they did that on purpose. They wanted to draw upon the James whale, the Karloff, the, the, the Pierce design. Um, and, and this movie feels very much an homage and a love letter to that. And that the horror that came before, but Zoltan and the whole like hypnotism element that kind of taps into a different era of universal. Like the, hypnotism was a very big thing in a lot of the inner sanctum mysteries. And if you, you yeah. know, and so true. That, that's something that was really uh, popular in universal horror films for a while. I think that people just felt like you were going to go to a dinner party and a mesmerist was going to be like, all right, now gaze into my eyes and steal the jewel from the countess or whatever, you know, it was uh, as it, as if that's actually how that worked. But it was such a big conceit of the 30s and 40s. To bring that back here also just feels like part of the great love letter. I agree. Yeah, I, the mesmerism thing. It's funny you mentioned Inner Sanctum because I just watched those movies like two weeks ago. <laughs> um, and that's so true. Um, and it, it really feels like a role that you could have seen like a young or not young, but like Bill Lugosi could have played that like in the 40s or 50s, you know, like that that kind of role. Um, but I think which inner sanctum mysteries should I watch tonight, given that I'm smashed any of Uh, them? Um, well, if you really want one that has a lot of, uh, hypnotism as part of the story, I would say the frozen ghost. Yeah. Frozen ghost is good. Sold. That's what I'm watching later. But, um, also it's like a tight, like 70 minutes at at, at all. Like, Oh yeah. Those movies, I, I mean, say, they feel like episodes of the Twilight Zone to me. Like, all yeah. of them. Like, in, in a good way. Love it. I can't wait to dive into them. I remember, Paul, you talking them up a couple of episodes ago with Daniel Epler, and uh, that's kind of what motivated me to pick up the box set. But I love the idea that they're essentially these little, like, 60, 65, 70-minute-long, uh, you know, horror tales. So, I, yeah. I can't wait. Frozen Ghost. Super, all right. Watching that fun. later. Is anybody else dizzy? <laughs> I'm good, yeah, you know, I, but just me. Okay. Just checking. <laughs> so Mr. Barati, just to let you know, this is the part of the podcast, the post show where we, uh, I don't even know what the hell we do here. Paul, what, what do we usually do during the post show that can last for a while? Mr. Barati, if you need to run, we completely understand. But if you'd like to hang out and chat about 
any number of things. We usually do that for about 30 to 45 minutes. So that is entirely up to you. I mean, I'm good. I mean, uh, maybe I should get more wine, but I'm otherwise fine. So please, please do go reload. Paul can tell me how successful he was. I'm trying to convince you to be a third co-host. And uh, I didn't really try at all. I just all right. damn it, Paul. Well, I'll I'll be back in seconds. So, um, Jinx, how you doing, buddy? I you know you doing good. When I stood here's the thing, Paul. I wasn't expecting a 99-proof um, alcohol to hit me as hard as it did. But it hit you hard, huh? It hit me hard, sir. Did it you did. know uh, that Peter Woodthorpe, I, I mentioned that he played Gollum in the animated Lord of the Rings, but did you know that he also played Gollum in the 26th consecutive Sunday radio that played in the in the UK at that time? He played Gollum as well. I, you're saying you're saying all these words, and I figure they make sense on some level. Yeah, they do. They do. But I, I don't. I don't know. I just I can't string them together to make sense for. It. Ha, have so, you tried? So you're not drinking anything 99 proof, Paul? If you were, no, I'm I'm drinking a a beer that is 6.5 okay. percent. That's cheating. Is it, I'm, is it? I'm a, Jake, I'm a, is it cheap? I, yes. It's it the is. Hammer Pub. Paul? The Hammer Pub serves beer. That's, okay, that's so, perfectly reasonable. Oh, you know what we didn't point out during the commentary? Can you, you just, about the Hammer yeah, Pub? Right now, I the bartender a of, of, has of been relative... serving me 49.5% alcohol by volume. <laughs> and he's been serving you swill. Okay, Wait, now... I, ha- I have returned to swill. Um, I refilled my wine. We were having an alcohol argument. Oh, well, I just refilled my wine. I was mesmerized in the hallway. Um, That's fair. Uh, The the scene, Jinx, where Peter Cushing sits down in in the Hammer Pub in the movie we just watched, when they actually visit a pub, there are masks hanging on the wall behind him. Those masks are from uh, are Roy Ashton creations from Kiss of the Vampire. That was one I, thing I wanted to point out, but I forgot to. <laughs> does that mean that Evil of Frankenstein is in canon with Kiss of the Vampire? Sure. <laughs> Let's say it is. Okay, your um, heart wasn't that. I, I actually have to say, speaking of the pub and the town, this is one of those Hammer movies where there is quite a really defined exterior world oh, which, yeah. yeah i mean because usually it's like the forest or we're in the bar or whatever but like we see a carnival we see people i mean they they sprung for extras on this well and, and that's uh, that's such a good point because the town is usually deserted you know i mean usually in the town there's like six people and they're the same people you keep seeing over and over again but again i think that was indicative of the universal studios budget they got like, they had actual money this time around. I mean, not a ton of money, but more money than they usually had. And I think that showed up in the carnival scenes and the exteriors and allowing for extras with nice costuming and things like that, which which is typically lacking from a lot of these movies. Do you think that explains the difference then between, say, the aesthetic between the first two Terrence Fisher joints and then the Freddie Francis one? Because to me, yeah. like, really? Because... Uh, Looking at Evil, of course, like, it has a larger budget, but to me, even, like, stylistically, it's trying to... You even mentioned this at the beginning of the commentary. Francis is doing something completely different from Terrence Fisher, you know? Terrence Fisher almost seems to be doing, like, an EC comic brought to life, you know? He's 
Sure. He's, he's doing kind of that creep show aesthetic before creep show ever would have thought of doing that, you know? Whereas which is Tony funny because he went on to direct Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, which I love. <laughs> uh, but, that movie, yeah. I mean, like, he he did. And then he did an episode of the TV show he went many years later. But, um, oh, well, he also was a self. He professed that he wasn't a huge gothic horror fan. I mean, he, he said it himself. Like, he wasn't really. He, he came on to this. He he had done a few Hammer horrors before this. He did Paranoiac and something else, but like he he wasn't a huge Terrence Fisher esque gothic horror guy. He was more of a straightforward director, but his but he always spoke in a visual medium. Like he was a he was a great visualist. Yeah, which he he brought to everything. Yeah, for sure. Because Trog looks great. Gotta love Trog. I do. I have a Trog t-shirt. I'm here for I, it. Yeah. No, I, I think Trog is great. I, I like Paranoiac. I like Nightmare. I mean, wasn't this ended up being paired with Nightmare? Like, this one has uh, a double with another hysteria. movie directed? Oh, oh Hysteria. Yeah. Okay. Um, but on he... the Universal Hammer box set, the Evil of Frankenstein and Nightmare are paired together on... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like, like later releases and things, like, it, it ended up oh. getting paired with the and and when uh, when this was coming out too, I think it's kind of interesting. Even though he didn't end up doing it, um, Carreras announced that the he, the Freddie Francis was going to be the director of uh, Quarter Ma- or not Quartermass, Quatermass and the Pit. Thank you, Paul. Uh, which would have been th- you're welcome. Would have been a very interesting <laughs> uh, uh, movie. I think. I think it would have been a really different movie than what uh, Roy Ward Baker gave us. So wait, when you say Quatermass, do you mean like Quatermass Experiment or Quatermass Two, or do you mean Quatermass in the Pit? No, in the Pit. In the really? Pit. Well, this was this was way after those other two. The other right, two right. were, were yeah. pre nineteen sixty. But um, yeah. gorgeous in their own. Like Quatermass Experiment is just a great movie, and everybody knows Quatermass in the Pit. Like that is the masterpiece out of them, right? But I honestly think after having revisited them all in the last year, the Quatermass Two is kind of like the. It's the curse of the fly of the trilogy. You know, it's that gorgeous, creepy, kind of unsettling black yeah, and white entry in the franchise that nobody talks about. But when you watch it, you're like, holy shit. Why does nobody talk about this? I love Quatermass 2. I, I uh, am a huge fan. Uh, I actually watched it probably most recently of the Quatermass movies. That whole sort of industrial park where the alien presence is is up to their shenanigans. That's my word of the night. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and the town that kind of uh, is steering everybody away. I don't know. Yeah. I I think that that sequel is a very, very solid sequel. Um, I have a Rocket Group coffee mug somewhere around here, and you've inspired <laughs> me to go kind of find it again. You know, that's, that's another sort of, like, franchise. You know, that's another one that they could really sort of tap into with a reboot like Quatermass is just that we haven't seen a reboot of that I well, mean, there was, how back in 2007 there was a uh, kind of like a do you remember when Clooney did um uh oh fuck uh in the mid 90s he did the live teleplay version of was it catch 22 maybe no it was it was like the it was like an it was like the atomic fail bomb safe. kind of fail fail safe. Safe. Yeah, i'm yeah, sorry yeah. so and not only did he oh the lume movie 
Yeah. Yes, in mid, the mid '90s, like after his big ER stardom, I think it was supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, I about, remember that. Okay, he yeah, did okay. a black and white live television version yeah. of Failsafe, uh, and he did one for Eastern Time, and he did one for Pacific. God bless him. So they did two different versions. I don't think it ever made it to disc, which is a tragedy because that his version of it was fucking great. But in 2007, Jason Fleming starred as uh, Quatermass in the BBC's kind of like, it was a similar live production. Uh, it's funny because uh, I remember reading once, uh, there's a moment in it with David Tennant where he approaches Jason Fleming's character and Fleming improv, uh, Tennant's character was a doctor and he hmm. had just been announced as the doctor in Doctor Who. And so Fleming... Interesting. Yes, and so Fleming on live television improv this line where he just said, you know, when he walked in, he was supposed to say hello, whatever his name was, and he just said hello, doctor, you know. Uh, but anyway, mm -hmm. he did Quatermass live once, and that was supposed to be kind of like a big reboot, and nothing really happened with it, which is a shame because Fleming is a great actor. But other than that, and I, I think there was a TV movie post Quatermass in the Pit back in the seventies that was meant to end the entire franchise with uh, but... with John Mills. Yeah, yeah. I yes, own all, yeah. I own all of these things you're talking about, and I will say. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that uh, the Jason Fleming one. Who else is in that? But Mark Gatiss. He's the first death. Oh, yes. um, oh, well, no, that's that's actually not true. He is in it longer, but he is involved in the first death. And um, you can, I believe, BritBox has that to stream if you want to watch it. It's wonderful. It is a remake of the Quatermass Experiment. Uh, it is kind of wacky how they do the monster effects, but it's kind of like no wackier than it is in the original movie. So <laughs> I have to check it out. Yeah. Cause I, I love the Quatermass movies. Um, I think they're all great. And like I said, I I'm, I'm one of those people that loves to imagine different versions of things. Like not, not that I don't love Quatermass in the pit because I think it's a great movie, but it, like thinking about Freddie Francis making that movie, is a really interesting idea. It's kind of like the idea that like John Carpenter almost made Firestarter, you know, like what would that right. movie have been? Um, it's, it's always interesting to imagine those kind of what ifs, you know, in the film industry. I agree. I agree. Honestly, you know, uh, the one thing that I've gathered from this entire conversation is that Mark Gatiss and hammer is the thing that needs to happen officially. Mm -hmm. And why it hasn't kind of mystifies me. I don't know. Paul, we were talking about Dracula earlier. Have you seen the Gatiss Moffat Dracula yet? I, I have not. That's why I was so quiet. Paul. <laughs> okay, go. When we hop off here, please go. Okay, so here's the thing. When you start watching the, yeah. the, the Moffat Gatiss Dracula on uh, Netflix. Okay. It's going to start out like every other Dracula adaptation you've ever seen, right? But yeah. the longer you stick with it, the bigger and bolder and weirder and more fucked up it becomes. The guy who plays Dracula is not drawing on any Dracula you have ever seen before in your life. Like, he's he's singular in the role. Oh, it's amazing. He's marvelous. Yeah, yeah. He's Dutch, right? He's a Dutch actor? I think so, yeah. I'm forgetting his name at the moment, but holy shit, is he... Oh, and you've Paul, sold me. I'm, Mr. I'm definitely going to watch it, yeah. Mr. Verratti is 100% right in uh, uh, the love for Van Helsing, because the Van Helsing that they present in the show is, again, unique, but so fucking wonderful. And there's so much... As much darkness and perversity and strangeness and craziness as there is in that Dracula, 
there is also so much heart in it. And well, Dracula and Van Helsing have to be formidable to each other. And so many versions that you see is like Dracula is almost all powerful. I, I mean, Hammer Hammer's sort of responsible for this in, in a certain way, but when it works the best is that, you know, Dracula is an immortal being and that's got to get boring. And even though right. he, he does not like Van Helsing, he kind of does because it gives him something to do. And mm-hmm. Gatiss plays with that in a way with this specific series that he did with Stephen Moffat that I've never seen before. I've seen people play, but it's like through the run of these three, because they're all there's three episodes, but they're all feature length. And I would argue that the second episode is one of the greatest Dracula stories I've ever seen. And one um, that should have happened ages ago. Why has there not just been a Demeter movie, you know? Honestly, but you get the sense that Dracula and Van Helsing are kind of like, we like each other, but we're in a chess game right now. And it's sort of like, if I win, the world's in trouble. And if you win, I die. So hmm. it's kind of like, but not, neither of us have been challenged in this way. And I've always loved stories of antagonists and protagonists who, even though it hinges upon one of them defeating the other, they really need one another. It's sort of like Moriarty's bored without Holmes. You know, it's that's what I want. That's what I want out of Dracula and Van Helsing. And this gives it in spades. Uh, yeah, I can't. I can't wait to check it out. I'm excited. This this is this sounds awesome. <laughs> it seriously, Paul. I watched it. Honestly, I I think it was just as the uh, the the fucking pandemic was hitting. Like it had come out no. sometime before, but I don't think I watched it until like right before things were closing down, which is actually kind of the perfect time to have started it. And uh, I kind of marathoned them. It is one of the greatest tellings of the Dracula story. And it's funny when you're watching it, you're like, oh, this is actually relatively <sighs> true to the original story. And then you're like, oh, my God, wait, it's not. And then by the third episode, it is. It just plays with time in a really interesting way as far as how mm. it goes about its adaptation. And again, man, if you watch it for no other reason, like the portrayals of Dracula and Van Helsing are completely unique and absolutely wonderful. Yeah, truly. I don't I'm know in. if any of that made sense because I've it got all made going. sense. I'm 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 totally in. Yeah, I am sold. I will I will watch it and report back. <laughs> What's weird is is that I kind of part of me really really wants for there to be another season and a follow-up and I want to see those characters again. I want to see that performance again. Uh both performances really. And yet at the same time, it ends so perfectly that I don't want them to touch it. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate sort of horror fan thing, right? Like, we all want more of what we love, but at the same time, we want perfect endings. <laughs> you know, it's it's so hard. Like, we want a million, uh, you know, sequels to Freddy and jason and michael myers and everything but like at the same time we want to like see a satisfying conclusion to these stories yeah and i feel like you know when it comes to slashers almost by their very nature 
not just slashers, you know, most uh, iconic horror characters, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, uh, Jason, Freddy, uh, Leatherface. You know, there, I remember, was it Alan Moore who said once upon a time that comic books, for as much as they're uh, sort of, oh, fuck, I'm, my brain is not working, but for as much as people talk about them being modern mythology, they're really not because the stories are never ending. They don't have an ending, and they need an ending. They need closure for them to actually be elevated to the point of being myths, songs that you can sing, something with a beginning, middle, end, and comic books don't have that. Neither still do some horror movie franchises, you know, which limits them in a way. And yet, I would say out of all of the slashers that we've ever had, the one that comes closest that I can think of is Norman Bates in the Psycho franchise. We have a beginning, we have a middle, we have an end. You know, even though, you know, that character's fate isn't necessarily tied to his uh, mortality, you know, but when you get to the final moments of Mick Garris's Psycho 4 at the beginning, you have a complete definitive ending for that character that makes complete sense, and it totally brings a close to his tale. How many other horror movie characters can we say that about? Yeah. No, it's it's absolutely true, and I, I one I love Psycho Four. Uh, I think that Mick Garris did really Thank wonderful. You. Oh yeah, yeah, Psycho Four is great. So uh, many people piss on that movie, and it's I don't I don't great. get that. Like, I, yeah, anyway, sorry. <laughs> but you know, I mean, sitting here, we've been talking about Dracula a lot, and I will reveal, and I've said this on Twitter before. I'm a very big Dracula fan. I, I have studied the lore. I'm a big fan of Dracula history and all the different tellings. Um, I, from where I'm sitting, I literally have a theatrical of Dracula has risen from the grave hanging on the wall in my office. Uh, in the other room, I do have a Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires theatrical poster. So Dracula is all over my house. And I, I do love the sequels, but sometimes some of the most satisfying Dracula stories are the complete stories. I agree with what you're saying about the Mark Gatiss one. It ends in a very satisfying way. I love, love, love John Badham's Frank Langella version of Dracula. Yeah. For the oh, reason. yes. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. It, to me, it, it, it is one of the definitive versions of Dracula because yeah. it tells a full gothic romance. Yeah. And when that cape floats away at the end, I don't need any more. I got everything I came for. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it is. It's, it's a strange gambit as a horror fan. It's like, oh, I hope he comes back so we get in another one of these. But as a storyteller, I'm like, but do I? Do yeah. I need him to go to space? Do I need him to fight a, you know, like, <laughs> I, I don't, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. I mean, and it's weird because I think some of it is just, there's a weird comforting thing that sets in with a character that you're incredibly familiar with and revisiting that same story over and over again. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's Dracula is such a good example or microcosm for the rest of all of horror franchisedom in that every time we see a new Dracula movie, it's generally based off the same core story, right? Every time yeah. we see a new Michael Myers movie, it's a sequel or it's a remake but it's it's always trying to do something slightly different. Whereas Dracula gets the luxury of just saying, no, we're going to tell you the same story again. We're just going to put a different spin on it. And and that, in some ways, is more truthful to what it is that all of these sequels are attempting to do anyway. Um, you know, and, and I'm somebody that is a huge Michael Myers fan. I'm very obsessed with that franchise because I that was the one that when I did get into horror 
it was the one I watched obsessively. I, I watched the sequels over and over again. I got really into the weird convoluted plot. And even though it makes no sense, I'm still like super into it and I love it. And when I hear that, you know, Blumhouse is like, okay, we're making a new trilogy. There's going to be three more and then it's going to be Halloween ends. And I'm like, yeah. And I can't wait for the sequel after Halloween ends. Cause there will be more, you know, because no matter what you say, no matter what you do, this is a character that's always going to be revisited. Um, and, and there's no way to put a period on the end of that sentence. Unless um, you're Rob Zombie and it's Halloween too. Well, we don't have to talk about that. We do. We do have to talk about it. Because one day, someday, I'm yeah, going to Yeah, you know you what? And, and now we have more movies. But, but I, think, I think Dracula, in some ways, is, is sort of the purest way of experiencing that same sort of uh, uh, reoccurring narrative because we're, we're constantly going back to that same core story. Um, right. And so I, I find that to be sort of the proto version of all of these other horror franchises that we keep revisiting. No, it's true. And I think that because it, at the end of it all, there is, there's a core. I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's, it's all about that core story. And it's what we want. Yeah. 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 It's what we want to keep going back to. Um, and it's, it's fun to see different people, you know, interpret that same story. I mean, it, it, it goes all the way back to Shakespeare, right? I mean, like we watch how many versions of Hamlet are there? How many versions of Macbeth? But it's still fun to watch those versions because it's fun to see different actors interpret a great role. That's important. You know, Dracula is, I mean, I'll say right now, I see Dracula as a similar character. Well, similarly important to a character like Hamlet. It's fun to see all of these Shakespearean actors attempt to do this character that we all know and recognize. In some way, it's more impressive to, to see somebody attempt to interpret a character that we all know and love you know, rather than someone that we're not familiar with. Absolutely. Because to be impressive at that level, you have to bring something completely new and inventive and innovative um, that, that, you know, you don't have the luxury of us not being familiar with the character and therefore interested in their plight just on those, that level alone. Well, and what's also important, and this goes all the way back to when we were talking about the El Mariachi of it all, that the different, ver the different versions of how a story is interpreted, who's telling the story, how the story gets passed on. And we applied that to the evil of Frankenstein. But when you look at something like Dracula or Hamlet, for example, when different artists and different companies, you know, theater companies or writers or scribes tell their version of the story, not only is the core story there, but something gets added to it. And sometimes those additions stick. And so we then the mythos changes in this sort of grand storytelling tradition where we pass stories down and pass stories on. And so what we kind of take as true and take as fact is, is really an amalgamation of all the people who have told the story. And there's something really cool about that. One of my favorite examples of this when it applies to Dracula, and I'm not here to throw Francis Ford Coppola under the bus, but... He claimed when he made Bram Stoker's Dracula that he was making the truest version to the text as possible. But 
a big point of what Dracula, his version of Dracula hinges upon is that Dracula and his relationship with Mina is this sort of like reincarnated, reincarnated love story. That does not exist in the book. What that comes from is in 1979 when Dan Curtis adapted Dracula for television (laughs) with Jack Palance. This is is 100% true. Yeah, yeah. He included the beat of the reincarnated lover into the Dracula story. Which comes from Dark Shadows, right? Which comes from Dark Shadows, which in of itself is fascinating because Barnabas Collins was created as sort of an analogy or or you know sort of rip off of dracula initially and w- w- they use sort of stoker's kind of model to introduce barnabas into dark shadows so barnabas collins is created as a result of dracula and eventually then influences dracula in the mythos so you don't get Barnabas Collins without Dracula and the new version of Dracula doesn't exist without Barnabas Collins. It's fucking amazing. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, and that's, that's, that's storytelling. Fantastic. Yeah, that's true. I love it. I, do, do you agree with Alan Moore, the notion though, that these stories need a definitive ending in order to be elevated to the status of modern myth? Um, but they have definitive endings. We just sat and talked yeah. about the different endings. We know at the end of Dracula at Borgo Pass, Van Helsing and the crew of vampire hunters kill him. We know at the end of Mark Gatiss's version, I'm not going to say it because Paul hasn't seen it, but XYZ. We know at the end of John Badham's Dracula that cape floats away into the wind. Mm-hmm. We get the ending but we still obsess. So what happens? Someone new takes the story and they start at the beginning. Jonathan Harker gets a letter that brings him to Transylvania and the story gets told again. In the back alleys of Gotham City, leaving a movie theater, Bruce Wayne's parents get murdered. How many times do we tell the story? The story continues. Superheroes are modern myth because we have taken the story and told it time and time again. How many times can the kid get bitten by a spider? How many times can Bruce Wayne's parents get shot? How many times can Krypton explode? How many times can Jonathan Harker get called away? How many times can Frankenstein start building a monster? Infinite numbers. But the story always begins and it always gets an end until someone new tells the story. Yeah. Do you think so far as myth is concerned that the beginnings are more important than the endings? Because looking at the Hammer movies, like, <sighs> Frankenstein does not have an ending. You know, Dracula does not have an ending. Um, these are characters, they are, you know, I would say that the, the Hammer runs on both Dracula and Frankenstein are the most serialized that those characters ever were. Uh, even more so than the Universal movies. And yet they have no closure whatsoever they don't and they do though right because every single hammer movie sort like what i always kind of crack up about that doesn't happen in modern horror because we always have the moment in modern horror where the bad guy gets beat we fade out and then we get to see like what happened to the protagonist or whatever (laughs) but but hammer's just like oh dracula's under the ice credits the, the castle exploded, credits. Like, it's just sort of like, here we yeah. go, the black guy's done, boom. And it's just like, well, we killed the character that you came to see, done. Um, yeah. And in a way, there's a finality. And until someone picks it up, 
that is where the story ends, maybe even as unsatisfying as it is. So as far as we are concerned, timeline-wise, not necessarily film-wise, when Van Helsing, Lorimer, his descendant, defeats Dracula at the end of Satanic Rites in 1974-73, whenever it happens, Dracula's dead. You know, that's it. Like, he is gone. Period. Until next time. You know? (laughs) (laughs) But, like, because they never made another one, we just assume that that's where it ends until someone's just like, okay, here it is, Dracula 1982, let's go. You know? I want to see that movie. I want to see Dracula 1982, damn it. Oh, my God. Uh, You know what? Someone should make that right now. Like, Dracula AD 1982 would be an amazing movie to make right now. Paul, I feel like we missed that boat, and now it needs to be, like, Dracula AD 1992. You know, we've passed the 80s up, and now we're just starting to enter into the sort of resurgence in, uh, like, 90s film aesthetics, which I can't wait for, because as much as it was pissed on back in the day, back when I first became, like, a Fango fan and hanging out on horror movies message boards when they were relatively new, uh, as much as people sort of poo-pooed, like, 90s horror, that's what I grew up with, and I adore that era and the first movie that i really saw that really seemed to harken back to that era is a movie that i actually really dig from this past year which was the craft legacy give me more of that well i will tell you with regard to dracula 1982 and i referenced this all the way a couple hours ago uh when i had pitched to titan different comic book lines that was a storyline that i pitched to them Um, Uh and because i didn't sign an nda and they didn't buy it i can tell you but i had wanted to do dracula 80 1982 uh and make um the joanna version of van Hel- like the granddaughter the van helsing of the 80s and, oh, wow. and and that was my plan i was like that would be cool like we could do this whole like 80s thing where she is now i think jennifer is the character's name jennifer is now the van helsing um and you could either use the like likeness of joanna lumley or uh stephanie beecham who was was the character in I was going to ask, like, which which Van Helsing granddaughter were you going to use? <laughs> well, as an AbFab fan, I would love to just, like, I love the idea of Joanna Lumley kind of, like, gadding about London, trying to stop vampires. Um, but I think, you know, it, it, there's still a possibility. And drag you could keep doing it you know you could do dracula 80 1982 you could do dracula 1992 as as mortifying it is to guys like us you could do dracula 2002 if you needed to yeah you, know? you could you're right I, you know yeah. what as much as we talked about people taking uh and paul and i talk about this all the time too about people attempting to revive hammer even if it isn't official like you could tell movies like uh burton's sleepy hollow like sleepy hollow is totally a hammer film even if it isn't a hammer oh yeah. Film. yeah sweeney todd is a hammer musical if there ever right. was one you know the, the um, boy the boy the, is a hammer film the boy is 100 percent like a hammer flick you know when we look at holy shit, I forgot where I was going with this. Damn this alcohol! Uh, the others, what we the others was kind of hammerish. The others was kind of hammerish. I was thinking about something else. Fuck, what were where were we? Uh, well, it's gone. <laughs> Damn it! Classic jinx. Uh, I know I'm a failure. Um, no, 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 no. Uh, but when it comes to uh, like modern hammer. Yeah, it's gone. Sorry, guys. Anyway, it's worth. Fuck. You know what? It was worth the journey. I still enjoyed it. I no, I'm gonna get there. By God. 
I mean, was it not Aerosmith who said it's about the journey, not the destination? And exactly. I, like, yeah. Every every uh, Hammer podcast should end with a Aerosmith quote, I think. I know. <laughs> and it's only going to, if Mr. Verratti agrees to come back at some point, or every week, whichever he prefers, to the <laughs> Hammer Pub. Sir, I'm, I'm just going to say at this point, the Hammer Pub is always open to you. You have an oh, open invitation. Absolutely. Never oh, worry about the velvet rope outside. Like, you, you're always There's welcome. There's a rope outside? <laughs> there is now, only so I can actually invite him over it without pause whatsoever. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what. I uh, I love Hammer. I love talking to you guys. I'm happy to return uh, whenever. I don't know if I can make it every week, but that's the best part of a pub or a bar, right? Like when people just kind of show up from time to time. So you, ju- you just let me know and um, I'll pop by. Uh, I'm enjoying my wine. I'm enjoying my, my monster talk and I'm enjoying this. So Good deal. All right. We are about two hours and 45 minutes in, which is crazy to me. It seems like this time has flown by. I think we should probably go ahead and start wrapping it up. Mr. Roddy, can you tell listeners out there where they can find you at online and what they can keep an eye out for from you in the upcoming future? Yeah, I uh, am most commonly found on Twitter at Michael Verratti. That's I just use my name. You can find me on Instagram as well. Uh, please don't follow me on Facebook because I never use it. Um <laughs> But otherwise, those two are great. Uh, As mentioned at the top of the show, I do horror movies as well as TV movies. Uh, Jinx had mentioned that I I did the the horror movie that your brother liked and the TV movie that your mom loved. It is true. I write movies for Lifetime and Hallmark occasionally, uh, but I also do very gay horror films. Uh, so, you know, it depends what your sensibilities are. I think if you're listening to this, I could probably glean that. Um, I... I recently did, however, finish a uh, eight-part miniseries for Deku, which is a stream- streaming platform uh, called So Far So Close. It was an experiment in filmmaking uh, that was made entirely remotely using 21 different actors across five different states and two continents. I created oh, wow. it with my production partner, Brandon Kirby, uh, and um, it is an eight-part intersecting anthology series all about how we sort of it use these digital platforms to create versions of ourselves and uh, use screens to like make windows and barriers. And every episode is set on a different digital platform. One is simply FaceTime. One is web therapy. We do kind of a grinder episode. We do a a work icebreaker episode and all of the characters sort of come together and intersect. Uh, And it, it was something that was created and born out of this global lockdown i mean it is not the kind of filmmaking that i think i probably would have ever attempted had this not happened but i'm grateful for it because uh it forced me to try and tell a different kind of story and i I feel very grateful that i got to because i learned a lot uh not only about the practical elements of filmmaking but kind of about like myself because i i I had to kind of mine into what happens when we log online? What are the things we want people to see? And what are the things that we don't? And uh, I was very lucky to get a whole cast of actors who are known for a variety of different things who not only were hungry to make work, but responded to the material. And uh, both Brandon and myself and uh, BJ Colangelo, who I know a lot of horror fans know, uh, oh, wow. she she joined us to write an episode uh, and a, a couple episodes and um, I directed six of the eight episodes. Brandon directed uh, 
two and co-directed one with me. Um, we're very happy with it. It is outside of genre, but it is the only, it is, is a kind of filmmaking that could have only been made now. And we're very grateful because in a time when people told us we couldn't make anything, not only did we make a thing, we made a big thing. You know, we made eight, we, we made eight episodes of a thing with actors all over the world. And uh, it debuts on Deku on February 5th. We're very excited about it. Um, as for all my other stuff, you can find it here and there. I'm scattered, scattered all over the internet and streaming services. A lot of my old Lifetime thrillers are on Hulu. Uh, I do the Boulay Brothers Dragula, which is on Netflix. Um, and if you very much have a, a, a taste for blood and, and glamour, that's the show for you. Um, yeah, I'm just very... I'm all over the place. I'm just happy to work and tell stories. And if you want to see what kind of nonsense I'm up to, come follow me. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm definitely going to check that series out. It sounds fantastic, sir. And again, thank you so much for uh, for your time and for agreeing to be on this episode. And like I said, please come back often. We loved having you here. I, I, I think I speak for myself and Paul. Paul, do you I do. speak for you? <laughs> you, you, you do. Yeah, you always do. You, you're, you're a better speaker than I. So I don't know about uh, that. Well, I'm slurring <laughs> my words. I don't know how these yeah, you just you have that speak. you have that, you know, talk show host vibe going. And I appreciate it. Uh, one of my ex-girlfriends uh, always said that I had Mr. Announcer voice. And I think she actually meant it as a pejorative. So I don't know. <laughs> oh, Who it's cares? funny. It's funny when you do podcasts, though, because when I was hosting Dead for Filth, uh, which I had mentioned, I think, while you were away getting drinks earlier, I had I had said my now retired for the time being podcast. I would occasionally get like family members or friends who have known me, and they're like, "What's this NPR voice that you do?" <laughs> and I'm like, "I don't know. I don't think people need to hear me screeching on the microphone. So I feel like I need to like calm it down a little bit, you know." And it's funny. I was talking to somebody just last night. I was telling her I was like, you know, it it, it bums me out that. And we all talk about this, certainly, but like the voice that I hear in my head, and I'm going to go ahead and be a little immodest here, is like the greatest voice that ever was. Like it's it, maybe not the greatest, but second only to Orson Welles. I feel bad. <laughs> I genuinely wow. feel bad that none of you can hear the voice that I have in Isn't my it? head but then i hear myself on podcasts recorded and you all say that let me tell you something no actual voice me has got nothing on inner voice me like it's it's not even well, you did compare it to worse wells i mean that's kind of i'm not joking Paul. i i wish you could hear the voice in my head it's like it's like me and i'm telling you like it's Orson Welles, and then I'm like a very close second. Isn't but it? then I hear myself recorded and then played back, and I ask people because I have to. I'm like, is that what I really sound like? And inevitably, people are like, uh, yeah. And I'm like, well, fuck. Well, isn't it funny though? Because that's, uh, of course, the voice I hear when I talk is not the voice that I hear when I do playback. But it, it is like you you have an idea of what your voice sounds like, and it's all because of like the bones in your head and like the where your your mouth is in relation to your ears. Um, and podcasting definitely teaches you 
a lot. You learn to be a little humble. You also learn what all your filler words are. Um, and and, and oh, it, yeah. is, it is, it is, it's just like a very funny thing because not only do I do a lot of podcasting and have hosted my own show and been on other people's shows, um, and this isn't a secret. It is something that, you know, people who, uh, have dug into my IMDb no, but I don't talk about a lot on Twitter. Uh, I also have like kind of a side career doing voice work. I do a lot of voice acting on, on movies, not cartoons, but like if you're watching a film and someone's driving and they're listening to the radio and it's like, you're listening to WKTLA, you know, or whatever. I do a lot of that. Oh my God. I think I've heard your voice before. That's amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, But it is funny because you, when you do voice work, and you do podcasts and you have to spend hours listening to yourself over and over again. And all of the affectations, you're both like, oh, I guess I don't sound terrible slash I'm also the worst thing I've ever heard. And- <laughs> yeah, I can't. I mean, I'm at the point where I cannot listen to a podcast where I've talked. Like I, I used to listen back to things and now I'm like, it, it's just too punishing. You know, I, I, I just, I can't stand the sound of my own voice. I, I hear all of my affectations. I hear my Chicago accent and everything I say. You know, it's just, it, there's no way around it at this point. I hear myself saying, uh, and um, a lot, and I hate it. Yeah. It so Minors praises. I'm pretty good with the uhs, the ums, and the likes, but I, uh, and I did it on this episode too, where I'll just be talking and I'll say, well, you know, what's interesting is, or what's fascinating, I just will throw in like a whole sentence yeah. and, <laughs> as, as if that is better somehow. <laughs> oh, I think it is. I think it is. At least, yeah. I mean, I'm a big, like, you know, guy, like, um, you know, like something like that, or, uh, you know. I just did it again, but it, it's, it's impossible. I, I I've been trying to work on it though. I mean, it's, it's something that the more I do this, the more I try to sort of pull those things out so I can overcome them, I suppose. Lucky you, me, just because I can recognize the problem doesn't mean I can actually face it and overcome it. Like I, I find that the more nervous that I am, the more I say, you know, like, uh, mm. I don't know if anyone out there, like, one of our most popular episodes was with uh, Elric Kane, who uh, chose Suspiria to talk about way back in the uh, previous pre-Hammer Pub iteration of the Scream Addicts podcast. And I swear to God, you can tell I'm nervous as hell in that episode because I say, you know, you know, because, you know, 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 like, it's, oh my God, like, it's, it's borderline unlistenable to me but uh but again it's a solid my, episode i enjoyed that episode quite a bit <laughs> well, you know, i i try not to listen to it because in my head like it was elric kane talking to uh orson wells and that episode is amazing so let's throw that out there all right we are nearly 10 minutes to three hours gentlemen i had a fantastic time talking with you both i would actually be keen to talk with you more at length except um i think i'm about to pass out or throw up one or the other i just know (laughs) that when i stand i'm gonna have a blast walking around so uh i hope you all have half the fun that i'm about to but uh mr ferrati again Thank you so much for being on the show, sir. We really appreciate it, and we hope you come back soon, like next week. But if you can't, we completely understand, but also open invitation. (laughs) It was my pleasure. I had a blast. Uh, You know, so I I will return sometime. Good deal. All right, Paul, where can folks find you out online? 
Sure. I am at the always modest Twitter handle uh, at Paul is great 2000. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I know I'm, I'm a bad person. Um, but, uh, yeah, you can find me there and I'll tweet about horror movies and all the things I'm writing about. All right. Let's see if I can't settle into what I usually do to end every episode. Folks, thanks. No, apparently I can't. All I'm going to say is 99 proof butterscotch shots. Throwing that out there. You get enough of those in you, you turn a little loopy. Folks, as always, thanks so much for listening. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below. Scream at us uh, at Facebook and on Twitter. That is at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. That's J-I-N-X-1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much. And, oh, Paul, before we end, what movie are we covering next week? Do you even know, sir? I have no idea. <laughs> Neither do I. And you know what? It's not only going to be a surprise for uh, our audiences, it'll be a surprise for us. But until then, folks listening out there, thanks so much and have a great weekend. <laughs>